four, three, two, one. Dude. <laughs> First of all, what possessed you to want to swim around the entire UK? How many thousands of miles is that? Yeah, uh, 2,000 miles altogether. 2,000 yeah. miles of swimming. Yeah, yeah. It, it seemed like a good idea at the time. And then halfway around, I realized how big Great Britain was. <laughs> but you, you've done some long swims before, but not like nothing even remotely like what's the longest swim you did before this yeah i did um oh, this is a bit of a strange story i did um i tried to swim between saint lucia and martinique uh two caribbean islands um it's only 40 kilometers from point to point um and and for charity i was trying to swim uh from point to point with with a hundred pound tree attached to my trunks um so i was pulling the hundred pound tree uh six foot waves crashing down and, and i actually didn't make it from point to point i was like five kilometers from the end and um when I didn't make it, I decided to swim back the other way. So I ended up swimming over a hundred kilometers with a hundred pound tree. It took me 32 hours, um, but still didn't make it. So, so what, it was, what, what went wrong where you didn't make it? Tides, currents, you know, and, and oh, I you just got swept away. Yeah. Yeah. And especially so, attached to a tree, right? <laughs> exactly. How big was this tree? Uh, so a hundred pounds, but it, I mean, it floats, but it was more the drag. Right. So if, if there's any influence from tides or currents and it's pulling you in one direction, I mean, I was basically going to miss Martinique. So I, I don't know, I was, I was heading to Cuba, you know, somewhere oh. like that. And then on the way back down, you know, I was, <laughs> they turned to me again and they said, like, you're going to miss St. Lucia. You're, you're going to end up in, I don't know, whatever's further south than St. Lucia. Um, and I think I realized as, as physically fit as you are, um, the ocean just just doesn't care. You know, yeah. it just it doesn't care. And so after that, this was last year, this was November last year, um, kind of felt I had unfinished business with, with the ocean. Um, <laughs> came, came back to England, uh, rung up um, friends of mine at the Royal Marines. I said, guys, look, this is going to sound so, so strange. I said, but I just, I need to get it out of my system. I just need to see how far I can swim in 48 hours. So I swam 48 hours. Um, I can't remember what it was in the end. I think it was 160 kilometers, something, something like that. And I finished and, and I had basically trench foot. So where your, your, your feet and your hands are, are so kind of, I've got so much water in that it's almost going moldy. You know, mm -hmm. it's kind of, yeah. So I had trench foot and I'm sort of sitting there nursing, nursing my feet. And uh, one, of the, one of the officers, uh, a, a good friend of mine, and they came over and they just said, uh, they went, you know, real English, raw marine. They said, you boy. And I said, yes. And they said, oh, what, are, what are you training for? I said, uh, oh, I'm, I'm training for uh, potentially attempting the world's longest current neutral swim. And then he just paused and he, he, he sipped his cup of tea and he looked me up and down. And he just goes, that just sounds a bit lame. <laughs> I was like, okay, what, <laughs> what do you want me to do? And he pauses and he says, you just need to man up. You need to man up and swim around Great Britain. And I was like, oh. whoa. And I can't, I can't, I, I couldn't say no. Once the should have said, why don't you swim with me, bitch? <laughs> I'll do it if you do it, motherfucker. <laughs> That's a crazy thing for somebody to be asking you to do. No, I know, right? So I, you know, I, I, so I said, fine. Once the idea stuck with me, I mean, you know, the, the, we've got this real history and heritage of, of British eccentric explorers. Mm -hmm. um, and for me, growing up, there's a story of Captain Webb. So the, the first guy to swim across the English Channel. And for those who don't know, English Channel, uh, you know, the tides, they believed were, were too strong. The water was too cold. They said, you, you just can't make it across the English Channel. It's impossible. But Captain Webb refused to listen. And uh, 1875, August, uh, crossed the English Channel. And this is the part I love. On a diet of beef broth and brandy in a woolen wetsuit, he swam, I think it was 23 hours, 
breaststroke with his head out the water because, and I quote, front crawl was ungentlemanly like. And, and there was that element that I just thought, that's amazing. Front crawl. What is the front crawl? So, so basically, that's front the crawl. The regular one. Yeah, like, but way back in 1875, it was like, no, that's... He thought it was ungentlemanly. Yeah. The, it was, the movements itself, themselves. Yeah, it was still being developed as a technique, whereas, you know, if you were a gentleman and you were a swimmer, you swim breaststroke, you know. You wow. Did, exactly. The head out of the water the <laughs> whole time? The whole way, 23 hours. And again, like the, sh the, the, the support boat was saying, you know, get out. You're not, you're not going to make it. You're not going to make it. And he just refused. And 23 hours. So, you know, that's part of a night swim as well. Head out the water just all the way. Why brandy? Is he, get, is he getting <laughs> fucked up or just a little bit of brandy? <laughs> Do you know, I don't know, maybe it might have been a bit of Dutch courage, but I think there was, you know, certainly back then sports nutrition isn't what it is today. Right. So I think there was an element. He was even like uh, lubing himself up in, in goose fat. You know, this is way to make, back. make himself slicker? Slicker. And I think there was an element of warmth or that was certainly the mm, belief. Right. So it Did, was the Tour de France guys. Didn't they drink wine? That was like a big thing oh. back in the day. Way back, yeah. I mean, it wasn't too long ago. Me and Jamie were just, just talking now about football back in England and it wasn't till, you know, too long ago, I think maybe a hundred years ago, they used to just keep brandy in the dressing room in case you needed to warm yourself up. Really? Before you went out. Oh, yeah. yeah. Wow. Yeah. So they would play soccer drunk. Yeah, kind of just like with a little bit in there, but like you said, just warm yourself just up. Just a little bit of something. <laughs> exactly. Get the old engine turning over. Exactly. Yeah. Wow. Wow. And I think, you know, people don't understand that it's taken, you know, people like Captain Webb, maybe me to a smaller extent to just raise the bar, push the boundaries. And, and uh, you know, uh, you've seen that. I think our generation have seen that um, with the UFC, with mixed martial arts that has evolved so fast. Um, I always remember Forrest Griffin used to kind of liken himself to the basketball players, just shooting three-pointers with the, the ball between the legs, mm -hmm. you know. And that always resonated with me because I was like, yeah, the, the evolution that we've seen and what sort of Bruce Lee had the, the foresight to predict is amazing and I think in a, in a much 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 smaller way again to go back to sort of British athletes and adventurers um, Roger Bannister you know first guy mm -hmm. to run a four-minute mile right. and people said couldn't be done and he was a medical student at the time leading physician said you can't do it your lungs will explode your legs will fall off all sorts um, but no he said you know Oxford uh, laced up his trainers and and ran a four-minute mile similar right now to what I think we're seeing with Kipchoge, you know, and, and the two-hour marathon. And mm. so that's why, in a, in again, in a much, much smaller way, when I had that conversation about swimming around Great Britain, everybody said it can't be done. Um, yes, it's 2,000 miles, but there's giant whirlpools in Scotland called the Corriavecan, uh, Penland Firth, renowned around the world. If you get that wrong, you're disappearing backwards at 10 knots. You, you, there's no way you're swimming against that. And, and 10 knots, wow. that's, that's a dolphin speed. Jesus. Yeah. So what is know. 10 knots in miles per hour? Uh, basically 10 miles per hour. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. 10 so, miles per hour backwards as you're trying to go forwards. Basically, yeah. Penland first, so the top of Scotland, the currents that go across there. So it's running at a good clip. But yo, yeah. Backwards. I mean, yeah. I mean, we got it good. We, we, we managed to basically predict it so well that I, I, I think that was probably my top speed, which I did uh, 8.7 knots. So 8.7 miles per hour. I, I was basically cruising along the top, which is, wow. which is like a dolphin. So you were having the waves behind you, pushing you almost. And see, now that's what's interesting because I had the tides and currents with me, not necessarily the waves. Yeah, I, I said it wrong. And, and when you get, but, but actually you made a good point in terms of when you get wind over tide. So if you've got 10 knots going this way, but mm -hmm. you've even got a little bit of wind and waves going this way, it, it can get choppy. Oh, uh, okay. And, and again, sort of 
looking at West Scotland, Windover Tide, you can get 40 knots coming straight down the barrel, but you're trying to swim with the tide. And Whoa. Yeah. So the wind is coming at you, but the tide is going the opposite way. And as you can imagine, that just... Oh, my God. Yeah, yeah. So how do you predict this 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 tide that you have to get right? Yeah, I mean, it's it's... In completely in theory, and this is what I realized when I, when I sat down and we started pl- sort of plotting the Great What British is it swim. called again? What is the, the issue that will push you back? Oh, just the title, yes. Yeah. So what the, is it called? That, that area? Oh. That you say you got to get right? Oh, so Penland Firth. Penland Firth? Uh, the Penland Firth. Penland Firth. Yeah, yeah. And mm. that's that, like I said, renowned around the world. But, but equally... If you imagine the shape of Great Britain, there's all sorts of kind of compression where the water will just come rushing through. And as well as the Penland Firth, you can get, you know, six knots around Wales. There's an island called Skoma. And if you get that right, you are disappearing up, you know, and you're winning. You get it wrong, again, you're, just, you're going backwards. And for, wow. me, for me to do a continuous stage swim, if I'm going backwards, I've got to start where I was going backwards. So for me getting every single tide right. And that's why I was so... The team were amazing. There was a... uh, The captain, uh, Matt, was just incredible that every night the homework began. Jim, are we okay here? No? Did we crash? All right, folks, if you're listening or watching, we had a little technical difficulty. So this is not streaming live. We'll be uploaded later. We were just going over how you predicted you had to, and your team had to predict how the tide was coming because if it went wrong, you'd get pushed backwards at like 10 miles an hour. Yeah, basically. And, and, th- and this is the thing. I think with the Great British Swim, we were kind of taking swimming as most people understand it, and we were, we were removing it and putting it in, a, in an arena that was so different. So, And I think that's why it was... It, it, it did so well kind of online as well, the community around it, because obviously swimmers were interested, but, you know, surfers started to get involved because they understood the waves, um, sailors, fishermen, you know, all sorts of people started to say, you know, sometimes in Great Britain, it's not t- safe to take a boat around the top of Scotland, you know, for instance, never mind a swimmer. Um, so that's that's why it was amazing that, that on the entire series, it became a, a melting pot and an exchange of ideas because nobody knew how to get a human body around the coast of Great Britain. It wasn't just about swimming. And, and that was what was really cool. How do, how do they know? Like when the tides are going one way or the other, how, how do they predict that? Yeah, I mean, tides are so predictable. So in theory, um, they change every six hours. So in theory, when we sat down and we looked, um, we know that if you do six hours on, six hours off, for 157 days, you'll make it around the coast of Great Britain. You know? and, and, and that was the theory. So you do this biphasic sleep mm-hmm. and, and you swim for 12 hours a day. But that's all theory. There's times when, as I mentioned, uh, giant whirlpools or, or the tides might not necessarily... If you imagine sort of that's Great Britain there, the tides don't necessarily go always like this. So they're not that predictable. Sometimes if there's kind of like this, like that's kind of whales there, the tides will do this. So you're kind you're, of... Just, you're doing all these different things that people are not going to see. Right. right. Uh, so, they're listening to it on audio. So just try to just describe it. Right. So basically, rather than the tides just going up and down and working with you... Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes, sometimes they cross. Cross. Yeah. So you're just kind of mm. getting slapped across the face by yeah. tides, essentially. And it's not just helping you. You're going to basically zigzag all the way up the coast of Great Britain. So as predictable as tides are... We found there was so much stuff that when we were out there, we were like, oh, it wasn't meant to do that. Or mm. a giant whirlpool wasn't meant to be there, you know, but it is. And, and that was what was, you know, 
pretty yeah pretty sketchy at sometimes you know that when we're out there if a whirlpool just decides to appear you've got you, there's not really enough time to say oh hang on that wasn't on the map can we look at that can we speak to the met office and and talk about you know weather reports no you just you either had to swim through it or, or try and get out there as quick as you could. So when you encounter something like that and you get stuck, do you pull out of the water and try back again later at the same location? You do, but quite often if it was there, it's still going to be there. Oh, it's just, it is what it is. Yeah. So, so sometimes there's, there's no option. And perhaps the best example of this, um, I mentioned it before, it's called the Corrie of Vecan, So uh, sort of west coast of Scotland. And um, it's a giant whirlpool. And, and Matt, the captain, turned to me and said, look, Ross, you know, I need you to swim and I need you to swim hard. You know, you need to swim six hours. You just need to be clear of this whirlpool. Um, so as we were swimming past it, I set my watch and swam hard for six hours. But about three hours in, um, I got stung by a jellyfish. And I'd been stung by jellyfish a lot before. It's just, you know, it's painful, but it was, it was bearable. Um, but this one particular jellyfish, it just, it was searing into my skin. It just, it wouldn't stop throbbing and so I, I carried on swimming three hours passed and and it was just unbearable so I popped my head up and I looked at Matt the captain from the boat I said Matt I'm so sorry I've been stung I'm gonna you know I'm gonna have to stop um I've been stung by a jellyfish but it's, the pain's just not going away and as, as I said that to him he looked down at me and he said yeah I know because the tentacle's still wrapped around your face so I'd basically been swimming for three hours with a jellyfish on your face <laughs> wearing a jellyfish oh. so it wrapped into my goggles so I took my goggles oh. off unpeeled this fat tentacle threw it away um and then like i said i'll, I'll show you in a minute I'll, I'll, there was a picture where my my face sort of changed shape and the goggles wouldn't fit on my face anymore because my my eye sockets were so swelled um but i knew that again for all of this happening the corrievec and the giant whirlpool was still to my left so matt was like you still need to swim you still need to swim so i ended up putting the goggles over my face and to try and get them to seal I just punched them into my face. So you just had these perfect ring. And then I managed to- Because you were so swollen. Yeah. So you had to push them through the swelling. Basically, yeah. Oh my God. <laughs> so you swim. Um, I made another hour. We, we got clear of the Corrievecans. We managed to clear this giant whirlpool. I collapse onto the boat. And, um, and this is the thing. It was at that point that I collapsed, exhausted, face, now a different shape to when I started that particular swim. And- um, and the team looked at me and they saw how bad I was, how, how beaten up I was. But they also knew that, that the sea just doesn't care. And in six hours, the tide was going to change and I'm going to have to do that all over again. Wow. And, and it was that kind of brutal lesson from nature that, that from a sports science background, I'm interested in, you know, rehab, rest, recovery, nutrition strategies, all of this. But with swimming around Great Britain, it, it very quickly became apparent that the sea just doesn't care. It just doesn't care that, that you need to rehab your shoulders. It doesn't care that the ligaments and tendons in your shoulders are hurting. You might get impingement from swimming too much. You know, none of this. And um, that's why it went from swimming, as I understood it, and how a lot of people understand it, to something completely like surviving, basically, in the water. So your swimming schedule would be six hours on, and then you would try to rest. When would you eat? Uh, during the swims or, or, or between? And during the swims. Yeah, yeah. So quite often just, you know, throwing bananas at me and, and just... Wow. Uh, you salty know, bananas. Basically, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> just salty bananas. And, and you'd eat them while you're in the water? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, because again, going back to what we were talking about with the Pendulum Firth, you could get out and you could get on the boat, but sometimes in a really good tide, 
if you are just in the water, you could be making four knots. You don't have to swim, but if you get in the freezing cold water of Scotland and you are quite happy getting hit in the face by tentacles, you can still make four knots. And so that's why so often it became about uh, something different than swimming. It was just it was just mental fortitude. It was physical fortitude. It was um, basically, and I always remember actually, uh, first day of autumn, um, I got up, it was two o'clock, so it was a night swim, two o'clock in the morning. And I left my wetsuit out to, to dry and um, I had to scrape just a thin layer of ice off the wetsuit before I could put it on. <laughs> but if I didn't, if I didn't get in and I didn't scrape that, that, that wetsuit, then that would have been, you know, 15 miles potentially that we would have missed out on. And if mm. you miss those 15 miles, the, the window of opportunity to swim around Great Britain because of the British summer being notoriously unpredictable and quite short, um, we wouldn't have made it round because even towards the end, there was two storms, uh, Storm Alum and Storm Cali, uh, uh, Ali and Callum, who kind of stopped us for those two days where we couldn't swim because you, you just couldn't swim in a storm. It wasn't safe. So when you were swimming, this was all during the summer? Yeah, yeah, uh, through the autumn. And then we finished November the 4th, which was going into the winter oh. as well. <laughs> and you started what month? Uh, June the 1st. So for since June, you've been swimming? Yeah, basically. God damn, man. That's so <laughs> crazy. Yeah. You know what's interesting, too? You're not built like a guy I'd expect to be doing this. You're right. Built, you're built like a tank. <laughs> like, that's not normal. Like, you're a big jack guy. Right. You, you look more like... <laughs> like an MMA fighter or a power lifter even. Right. Like you don't look like an endurance athlete. Yeah, which is, and, and we were just, we were speaking about this because I, I love the episode with you and C.T. Fletcher. I love that guy. I, I love that. And, and, and you know, as a big fan of, you know, Cam yeah, there you are. Look at this fucking picture. <laughs> Yo, dude. Get the fuck out of here. <laughs> if someone said that guy's going to swim around Great Britain, I'd be like, that guy's going to swim for half an hour and he's going to have a fucking heart attack. No, you're right. There, there was a lot. Yeah, I, and I'd probably be inclined to agree with you. But what I find interesting is when you start looking at um, so strength and stamina, for mm -hmm. so often people believe the two couldn't coexist. Right. You know? And uh, Robert Hickson uh, and his his uh, sort of research around concurrent training, that um, basically saying if, if you train for strength and stamina, you dilute the potency of the stimuli. So what, what I mean by that is if, you know, we went into the gym just now and, uh, you know, me, me, you and Jamie walked into the gym and we were like, okay, okay, let's, let's go and see uh, what we're doing on, uh, in, in the squat rack, you know, that's strength, your body's ability to generate force. And we trained that. And then all of a sudden I was like, okay, no, 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 no. Now let's go over to the rowing machine or let's go for a swim. Let's go and swim 10K. Then all of a sudden our bodies are going to go, well, hang on, which one do you want us to adapt to? Or, you know, looking at, you know, molecular biology, which one, do you want us to adapt to strength or stamina? And again, you dilute the potency of that stimuli. However, there's the theory that if you separate them within the laws, I'm going off on a little bit of a tangent here, but no, please, <laughs> thank you. It's good. Looking at um, Verkashansky, so one of the greatest strength and conditioning coaches to ever exist, he talks about this idea of adaptive energy, saying that in any given day you have a certain amount of adaptive energy, and if you are able to fit both. A, a training session that, that, like I said, causes your body to adapt to both strength and stamina and you separate them, under those conditions, they can coexist. So you separate them by how much time? As much as needed for optimal recovery. So, right. so yeah, if, if we did, and this is, the, this is what I find fascinating about MMA, because you're essentially saying to an MMA athlete, I need you to be strong, fast, quick. I need you to be muscularly endured, but I also need you to have plyometric speed strength. Mm -hmm. And their body's going, you want us to be all of those things. Right. Like, you know, and that's why quite often it's the athlete with a higher work capacity who can 
you know, adapt to those, looking at like, you know, the Diaz brothers who just do triathlons for fun. Mm-hmm. You know, they have this insane work capacity, you know, so so that's kind of your, your body's ability to perform and positively tolerate training of a given intensity or duration. Right. So, so if you have the Diaz brothers and you say, okay, we're going to now do weight training in the morning, but by the afternoon, I also need to go and swim a 10K, their bodies could tolerate that. Whereas if you have another athlete who perhaps, you know, doesn't have that work capacity, their body's not going to positively tolerate it. Right. A person who's used to working out maybe only an hour a day. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So so that's essentially how I would would uh, approach anything like this. But what I found really interesting when you were talking um, with, with C.T. Fletcher was when you look at strength and stamina, it's it's so specific. So, you know, said principle, specific adaptation to impose demands. You know, you get good at whatever you continually practice. And when you look at endurance in weight-bearing sports, absolutely, you know, you can argue that, that running, for instance, is, is just, you know, power-to-weight ratio. It's, it's a series of successive jumps. Um, and when you start looking at that, there's research that will show adding, and we, we did this with the Royal Marines back in England, when you just add one kilo of extra weight in a backpack, its effect on pulmonary ventilation, lactic threshold, time to fatigue, all of those things, just one, one kilogram, that's it. And so that's why when you see Tour de France and people like Chris Froome, Bradley Wiggins, you know, from Team Sky, they are just looking at the body saying, okay, your VO2 is what it is, your power to, your power to weight ratio, that's what we need to improve. We need to treat you like a Formula One car. Mm. We need to take away anything, you know. So when you look at Chris Froome, you know, an unbelievable athlete, and they say, well, look, you don't need biceps, you don't need triceps, so they will remove those. Mm-hmm. Controlled muscular atrophy. Um, and how do they approach that? intelligently i i suppose looking at anything from you know a calorie deficit just tell them not to pick anything up ever kind of yeah <laughs> and it's just <laughs> exactly that's crazy and there yeah, it is there you go got no triceps they don't they went away exactly but i mean that is that is the perfect example of you know you know said principle specific adaptation to impose demands that all he does is he lives on a bike so as a result, his body is, is a byproduct of what he continually practices. Just got bike muscles. Yeah, yeah. And so, so looking at that, and, and sorry, going back to strength and stamina, that when you look at running, you could argue that, you know, being jacked and, and being heavier, yes, absolutely, your power to weight ratio is going to impact you. So for instance, I like to run, but I don't stand a chance against some of my friends who are, you know, fell runners and they weigh, you know, 30 kilos less than me. However, like rich, rich role. Exactly. Yeah. Thin, thin, lean, long guy. Just, yeah, you look yeah. at him, unbelievable specimen of a man. You go, yes, you were built for endurance. Mm. But as soon as you go in the water, things might start to change a little bit because now it's non-weight bearing. So mm. the power to weight ratio is a little bit different. So then you could, and this is all theory for the moment, but looking at the body shape to swim around Great Britain, because no one's ever done it before. So you can say, okay, w- what does that body type look like? And when writing down a checklist, you say, we need someone who can swim in, you know, 40 knots of wind, wind over tide that we're talking about. So you're not going to break. On top of that as well, you can start to look at um, all of a sudden we need someone who's never going to take a day off. So I I wasn't sick throughout those 157 days. So there you start looking at adaptive energy and and work capacity that we just spoke about. And then all of a sudden you can start getting real into the detail of looking at, okay, someone with a higher muscle mass. If they're able to effectively swim and their biomechanics are, are, are on point, so that's not, you know, this muscle mass isn't interfering with their biomechanics, could it be argued that that stored muscle glycogen can almost turn them into a human whale? 
you know that yeah you're right you put me into the pool with michael phelps and he laps me you know he he to look at him swim it's unbelievable he looks like a dolphin it's it's right. beautiful but when it comes to something like swimming around in great britain it's just it's just an eating competition you know with a little bit of swimming involved and you just need to make sure you don't break and that goes back to the tides as well your body working with tides if you can just keep getting in the water for 157 days 12 hours a day and not break you'll make it wear in great britain basically. so you think the muscle mass aids you in that way i would argue yes yeah i mean and I've, this is purely anecdotal and right. i'd love to actually do more research into this but but certainly with a lot of athletes that i train with that it's almost like a bell curve so if you can imagine you know for those listening like a bell curve like that how do you describe that just um just a like a horseshoe yeah yeah so you can argue that here around endurance so if you've got somebody who's you know to use rich rolls example an amazing swimmer the over 10k he's going to be amazing because his efficiency and everything but then past this point so when we start looking at the mileage that we were covering so it sort of english channel swimmers 20 miles plus a day at this point this leaner swimmer is going to start running out of muscle glycogen. Mm. His biomechanics might break down because he doesn't have the strength to hold that position continually. All of those things, the waves start crashing and he's starting to swim into 40 knots of wind. What's going to happen? Are you going to be, would you favor the, the leaner, quicker, more streamlined swimmer? Or would you argue that the guy with more muscle mass here is going to continue to swim? Not necessarily at the same pace, but would continue not to break. I think it depends on who the man with the muscle mass is because a lot of guys with muscle mass, they got that muscle mass from doing very low reps, high weight. I mean, what, what kind of exercise do you do that gives you a build like that? See, and that's a good point. I mean, I loved what you did with, um, with Dorian Yates. And um, I think when you start looking at the, the three mechanisms to build muscular hypertrophy, you start looking at um, metabolic stress. So uh, metabolic stress being exactly what you just said, lots and lots of reps. Dorian Yates being a great example of that. That is more muscular hypertrophy, bodybuilding centric work. Mm -hmm. Okay, That's metabolic stress, lots and lots of reps. Um, but then you can also look at mechanical tension. So that's more your power lifters, you know, really, really high weight, lower volume, just real strength, your body's ability to generate force. That is what I do. Um, and yes, it's shown to induce muscular hypertrophy, so to increase muscle mass, but arguably more functional you know than when you'd be looking at a you know bodybuilder mr olympia something like that and then you have a muscle damage which is more eccentric contraction so more arguably sort of crossfit so know. a bodybuilder to achieve that physique besides using steroids they have to use lots of repetitions yeah is that the idea yeah that's it so so when you say what do do i specifically use mm -hmm. it's more mechanical tension so, so it's more power lifting cleans deadlifts things along those lines is exactly yeah. it yeah yeah because yeah, you're not built like a bodybuilder but you're you're built like someone who's very strong yeah yeah and, and i think that's it where you start and, and, and that's not to say you know when you look at you know to, to use you as an example so, so if we had you in the sports lab we would say okay what is your strength deficit so your strength deficit is, is I know, say we had you on you know, the leg press and we said, Joe, we want to we wanna look at how much force your legs can generate with you just using basically your training strength. Your training strength is defined as the strength that you would use just leg pressing, not getting you all like sides of pre-workouts, smelling salts, none of that. We would just <laughs> say, Joe, go and right. leg press and you just leg press. And that's what you can generate there. But then in the sports lab back at Loughborough University, we would start using uh, basically 
electric, basically using electrical impulses to to make the muscles contract beyond what you could generate yourself. So that is what your body could generate without you trying to send those impulses to the body. It's you, the actual the actual potential muscle, the the strength of the muscles themselves. How do you determine that? Like I said, basically. Um, electrocuting the muscles and stimulating Whoa. it involuntarily and through that do they measure it how so oh so then that measures your uh, your maximal output with you not trying to use it yourself it's involuntary so that is something that you wouldn't have control over so they st- what do they how do they do that like essentially electrocuting you but what kind of what is it like electrodes that slap on your legs yeah. and they force you to extend your legs yeah you would have seen it yeah exactly but that. that you lift a weight with that yeah you can do yeah that's, so that's what they do yeah yeah i've never heard of such a thing yeah so, so you would be sitting in a leg press oh, and it or would anything. jolt your so legs cord extensions and it anything. would make your legs extend yeah yeah wow so they would monitor your strength so the so the difference between that so right. all of a sudden they'll say, okay, this over here, your training strength is what you could do, Joe, when I was just saying, okay, lift that. Right. And it's what you were going, okay, I'll lift it. And then over here, when it's involuntary, that is what you could actually do. That's the potential of the muscles. What's usually the higher number? Oh, absolutely. Well, so it's always involuntary. Really? Always. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. By how much? Well, and that's the strength deficit. Mm. So do you see what I mean? So, okay, so over here, this is what you could generate when you're just going, okay, one, two, three, and I'm lifting it myself. Ah, okay, that done. And over here is what we do when it's involuntary. Now, mm. if there's a big deficit, okay, so if there's a huge deficit between the two. That means you're a pussy? <laughs> it, mean, it means, <laughs> I, your words, not mine. <laughs> it means if there's a large deficit between the two. It means that you have muscle mass, but you're not fully using it. Right. So you might see a large deficit between the two if you had um, a bodybuilder, for instance, because they've got a lot of muscle mass, but they're not using it. Does that make sense? So why, why aren't they using it? Because it's, it's strength is functional. So they've mm-hmm. got all this muscle mass, but they're not recruiting it. They've not actually trained strength because strength is neuromuscular. So when a bodybuilder does like high repetitions and what was the type of load that you were calling that, how they were, you, that was uh, causing hypertrophy? So that's metabolic stress. Metabolic stress. So yeah. just a sheer number of sets. Yeah. Just constant repetitions over and over and over again with not that high a weight. Yes, yeah, and that's metabolic. But then mechanical tension is when um, it's more powerlifting-esque. Right. So there's your difference between the two. Mm. So the reason being is metabolic. So when you start looking at mechanical tension, that might produce an athlete who has a smaller strength deficit. Right. So when, again, using you as an example, if there was a smaller strength deficit between what you could voluntarily leg press, you know, leg extension, hamstring extension, and then involuntary, there's a smaller deficit. It would like, I would liken it to, okay, Joe, you have this much muscle mass, but you're using a lot of your potential. You're using it already. It's almost like you've got a, a Formula One car with a huge engine, but you're using it to its full extent. You know, and and this is why I'm going off on a slight tangent here. But this is why when you start looking at bodybuilding centric work, so this idea of increasing muscular hypertrophy, it can be a good thing when you understand that strength deficit. So you might have an athlete who you go, okay, you have a small strength deficit. It's very small. So for the muscle mass that you have, you're using it to its absolute full potential. It's like you have a very small car, but you are just pushing down the accelerator so hard Mm. and it can't go anymore. It's just redlined. Exactly. So the option that we have is to increase the size of the car. 
the option we have is to increase the size of your muscle mass. Does mm. that make sense? It does. Yeah. It does. Um, what kind of training were you doing to increase your capacity for work while maintaining the mass? Yeah. And this, this goes, uh, it's a bit of a strange story. So this goes back to something I almost call, um, you know, horsepower programming, which I think is, is so often lost now. I think training is very specific. When you go into the gym, are you training for strength, speed, stamina? Whereas horsepower programming, I, I almost borrowed from um, Soviet Union principles. So you start looking at uh, general physical preparedness as it, was, as it was known. And this is this just idea of you take an athlete, certainly a younger athlete, and you're trying to increase their work capacity by non-specific movements. So you'll get uh, you know, an athlete, you're handed, you know, imagine, okay, you're, you're a young uh, kid just growing up and, and your parents hand you to me, I'm your coach. And I say, okay, I don't know if Joe's going to be big, strong. I don't know if he's going to be able to run far or fast. I don't know. So what we're going to do is just cre increase your sort of neuromuscular efficiency and work capacity. And so by doing that, it's kind of jumps, throws, non-specific, these natural movement patterns. And we get you to do lots and lots of this. What that's doing is, is work capacity, your body's ability to, to positively tolerate training and given to intensity or duration. And I think from the Great British Swim, when a lot of people will say, how was it that you were able to tolerate those 12 hours a day, the jellyfish things and everything? It, for me... One of the biggest things was going back to, and this is going to sound so odd, but I um, I ran a marathon pulling a car uh, three three years ago, I think now. Um, and so that is almost the perfect embodiment of horsepower programming in that, that sheer stress on the body. But it's not a specific skill. When you say you ran a marathon behind a car... Uh, pulling, a pulling a car. You mean pulling so a car. Pulling a car. So in front of a car. Yeah. Not behind a car. No, yeah. So it was... Um, you pulled a car and ran a marathon? Yeah. <laughs> What the fuck, dude? <laughs> <was> Look at you. <laughs> they say, yeah, I. <laughs> you seem so normal. That's what's so confusing to me. Like, if I met you, I, there's something about a lot of these endurance people. Well, I guess not Courtney. Courtney Dolwalter, she's so carefree and silly. But you're very loose and relaxed. I always consider like those people like dark. There's some darkness to those extreme endurance athletes. Yeah. There's darkness that they're they're running from some darkness. <laughs> you know what I mean? No, I do. I've, I've had this conversation with a few people because they said something similar. And I think it's, um, I mean, you know, to slightly go off on, an, on another tangent here, because I think we've covered the physical aspect and, and work capacity, which, which I've addressed. But um, I think, and, and this is one thing I, I genuinely just wanted to almost quiz you on and get your thoughts on this, is uh, certainly the, throughout the Great British Swim, it, it subjected my body to a fatigue like I've never experienced before. It mm. was just, yeah, sleep deprivation, just ligaments, tendons in my shoulders, just wondering what was going on. And um, for me, you almost develop a, a, a split personality in that there's times when I, I'd quite often say you need to swim with a smile because, you know, it's 157 days. If you're stressed or it's like a marathon where you grit your teeth and you try and get through it. Um, I think we're very aware that, you know, the body is this complex biochemical organism. And if you're stressed, cortisol levels spike inflammation, your immune system, everything's affected. So for me, I was treating it not like a marathon. I had to treat it swim with a smile, you know, think this is this is life now. Right. You know, see, um, but then equally, there were times when, you know, I, I wouldn't swim with a smile. It was just, you know, Corey Beckham being a great example. You know, I, I certainly wasn't all that happy then. And, and for me, it's those times when I, I say you've got to just get feral. 
you know you've mm. really just got it and a good friend of mine you know back in back in england um uh, sas trained and he said to me ross you're you're a really nice guy and everything but there's going to be times when you just need to you know no smiles and just get feral which which i thinking about it and and because i had 12 hours to think a day <laughs> i was mulling this over in my head um for me it it goes back to tim noakes central governor theory mm -hmm. um looking at how fatigue is, is an emotionally driven state that we use to pull that physiological handbrake so uh, you know for those listening sort of 16 miles into a marathon you might be saying no way i can't keep putting one foot in front of the other there's no way um and then all of a sudden 25 miles in your family and friends are clapping you and you get that second wind and you yes. start sprinting um and for me looking at that the sort of central governor theory I found that in complete exhaustion, like when, when you absolutely have nothing left, you almost go into this feral state, you know, so like, a, like, a, like an injured dog, mm. you know, where a lot of people will say, oh, you know, remember why you started, think of your family and friends. And I was like, no, 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 I was at a level of fatigue where I wasn't thinking about, you know, family and friends. It, it, I was thinking almost, you know, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, where it starts with just food, shelter, oxygen, I was at that sort of level where there was sea ulcers. I mean, my neck's kind of healed now, but, you know, there was times when chafing on my neck, my, my tongue was falling apart. It's fine now, by the way, Joe. Your tongue was falling apart? <laughs> my tongue was... From the salt water? Yeah, yeah. And, and falling apart, like how so? It, it's, what, it's called salt tongue. And after 12 hours in the water every single day... Um, your, your tongue would essentially start to disintegrate. So, oh, Jesus. Yeah, nice. <laughs> so I, was, I woke up and there was parts of my tongue on my pillow. And oh. Uh, yeah. No, so this is... Is there any concern that this is permanent or it was permanent at the time? Were you concerned? Absolutely. And, and oh, I think Jesus that's, Christ, that's, that's, <laughs> But that's what goes back to that, that hierarchy of needs where you're not thinking about family and friends or what motivates you and what, you know... You, no, you're thinking, I want to keep my tongue. You know, yeah. you're like... <laughs> I mean, Fuck, man. Because <laughs> no one has really... Has, people have gone on long swims before, but has anybody done six months? I don't think so. There, there, um, there's Ben Lecomte at the moment who's going across the Pacific, but he uh, is using a snorkel. So he kind of oh, cleverly right. yeah. <laughs> thought about that. Whereas for me, I, I thought, no, this has to be done without properly uh, were you thinking about the guy who's just doing the breaststroke <laughs> and saying well if he did it fuck captain when then this is it yeah it was wow so yeah so no that and, and it was at that point that i think um you you are feral you know yeah. you're just thinking survive oh, yeah one one arm in front of the other keep going keep is moving exactly that you wow so here oh, pieces yeah. of your tongue this is a video that you made where pieces of your tongue were falling apart. Wow. The effect of salt buildup on the tongue. And yeah. this is on Ross's Instagram, which is Ross, E-D-G-L-E-Y. I uh, put it up on my Instagram, too. I re retweeted or reposted one of your uh, things to let people know about this. Oh, that is so nasty, dude. That bad. You can see the taste buds on it. That's how thick. So was it fucking with your taste buds? Oh, yeah. Like yeah. the way you tasted things? Oh, yeah. I, I, and that started to have an impact on, you know, the food as well. Because, I right. mean, like granola, I was eating so much granola. But when then that happened, it's like rubbing sandpaper on an oh, open wound. Oh, yeah, right. Is, the grit and the, the, the oats. Exactly. So, uh, and that was how we had to just adapt <sighs> on the day. So, so it's during that, that video is great, actually. I mean, that was in the cabin. And I remember just thinking, like, now I'm not thinking... You know, family and friends to, to talk about those, 
as you just said, those those darker moments, I think now it's very easy for me to be very grateful. I'm warm sitting in the studio with you. There's, there's no jellyfish. <laughs> but there's times there where, you know, it was dark on my neck as well. I mean, my neck was bad, but we didn't actually catch the, the, the moment was probably the worst on that where I went to bed with this open wound from the wetsuit chafing, basically. And um, as I woke up, the, the bed sheet had fused to my neck. Oh, so I just had to rip, rip it off, it, rip oh, it off from the pus and on your <laughs> neck. Oh, <laughs> Jesus Christ, son! <laughs> <laughs> right, and then you had to get in that salt water, which must have felt great. Right, yeah. Fuck, man. Yeah. What was it like when you finished? What did it feel like when the last stroke? <laughs> and then you got out of the water and you're like, holy shit, I just swam for six months. It was, yeah, it was, it was so strange because when we left in June, we came back obviously to the same point and we left in the British summer and everyone was on the beach and, and then I came back around, people are putting up Christmas decorations and I was like, wow, I'd, I'd been gone for so long <laughs> at sea. It was just. It's so crazy. It, How many days was it total? 157. Oh my yeah. God. That so, is so insane. It's just so much change. And oh, here, yeah, here we go. That was the, the finish. So this is swimming. Back then. So this is you. And the, well, who are all these people, these fucking hangers on, <laughs> following you around, pretending they did it too? <laughs> oh, it's with Ross. No, 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 no. I, Ross, I, I, Ross is my friend. <laughs> so I felt that, that it was such a, a, a team effort. Look I'm, at all those people waiting for you. My legs were so shaky, Joe. I, at this point, I'm thinking, don't fall over. Don't fall over. Wow. Because it has. I mean, this is the thing. I think I stumble in a little minute. That is such madness, man. Yeah. That it's such madness and you crossed the red bull finish line i got a trident that was pretty cool wow that's at home at the moment oh they hooked you up yeah what's that made out of it was really sturdy i don't know i don't know if it was like a bronze type thing but this <laughs> who are all these fucking phonies you didn't do it with them get out of the water you fucking posers but i i said i was like i feel that the the way that it, it captured everyone's mind it just only felt right you know, I get it. To do yeah. that. Do you swim? Yes. You do? Yeah. What? Just in the pool. Why didn't you come and get involved? Uh, I didn't even know about it. <laughs> right. You know how I found out about you? Because I was I, I was reading on the internet and I found out about it and I sent it to all my friends after Sober October to show what pussies we were. I was like, you guys think what we did was hard? Like, we did ain't shit. And I sent it to Tom and Bert and Ari and we were all just like, fuck. <laughs> Because whenever you hear about someone doing something crazy, there's so, always someone who does something far crazier to just one-up the crazy person, and then it keeps going and going and going. Like, there's a race that Courtney DeWalter, who's been a, um, a guest on the show before, she won the Moab 240, which is a 238-mile race through the Moab Mountains. And it's just an insane race. Not only did she win it, she won it by more than 10 hours ahead of the second place guy. And she's just a fucking straight savage. So she recently entered a race, and she came in second place. And this race, they would run for four miles in an hour. And then they would stop when the hour was over. They would stop, and then when the next hour started, they would run another four miles, like four point something miles, and they would do it for six days. That's crazy. They did it's like last man standing. That's crazy. And then at the very end, one person won. Like it's like who's gonna drop out last? So they just kept doing. So the guy who created this race, see if you can find anything on this guy. Cause 
He's, he's apparently very sadistic. And his idea was that people run these 100-mile races or a 50-mile race, and if you just finish, you feel like a winner. And he's like, well, bullshit. He goes, there can't be a winner if, if somebody comes in first place and then you're, you're second place. You're not the winner. Yeah. It's like there's one winner. Oh, Berkeley Marathons. Yeah. yeah, he's apparently chain he's, smokes too. He's amazing. So this is the Berkeley Marathons. You know about this? Did you see last? It's the same guy. He ran. He created that race, and this is another race another he one. created. Yeah. So he's amazing. So did you see? I think yeah. it was last year. I, 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 Jamie, is it right that What's it's the Berkeley Marathon? What is, is that? It the Berkeley or Barkley yeah. Marathon? Yeah, 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 Barkley. Berkeley. Berkeley or Barkley? Uh, is the Barkley the one that nobody could figure out how to? Yeah, Barkley. It's Barkley. Yeah, with the Barkley. Barkley That's the weird one. Yeah, yeah. Right? yeah. and yeah. I think it was. If you search this, Jamie, as well, I think it was last year or the year before. I believe it's the twenty-four hour race or forty-eight <coughs> hours. But the guy missed out on finishing it by, I think it was a minute. So he mm. ran oh, the yeah, entire, yeah, yeah. and then yeah. at the end, and you see him on the floor. He's absolutely devastated. And he didn't he take a wrong turn somewhere along the line? Yeah, because it's really difficult to follow that, yeah. that path. Yeah, and but admirably, he just got up and he he shook his hand and just said, "I just want to thank you, you know, for that." He said, "Sometimes, you know, the Barkley Barkley Marathon wins, but you know that that mm. takes something different, right?" Well, you definitely takes something different to see if find out if I'm correct in how they do it. I, I retweeted the Courtney Dowalter one. I retweeted it from Courtney where it says it's like getting punched in the face very softly over and over and over again. <laughs> yep. That's exactly yeah. I compare it to being punched in the face. Can you put it face. up though? Can you put the article up? Well, this is so bad. version of the article. I don't that know if it's so the exact bad. one you have. Yeah, that's exactly it. So if you scroll down, you'll see the, the, the specifications. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. And this is what I find amazing because then it becomes about something completely different. I mean, we were just talking now about Kipchoge and the two-hour marathon. But it's like if you pick Kip, put Kipchoge into this, you know, who's going to win? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it says they had an hour to complete the 4.1667-mile loop. And then they finished within 15 minutes to spare. The bell clangs again. At 7.40 a.m., they run it again. And then at 8.40 a.m., they run it again. At 9.40, they run it again. So every hour, you run this 4.1667-mile loop, and then it, the bell just keeps clanging forever. So <laughs> why, do you, why do you think there's more people doing these events now well, as well? Well, I think it's the same thing as everything else. Uh, the same thing as if you you buy a car today, you want it to accelerate from zero to sixty in two and a half seconds. Right. Yeah, a few years ago, that was unheard of. Mm. If you buy a computer today, you want it to be three point eight gigahertz and five terabyte hard drive, and that's it's the same every year. We want improvements. Right. And I think when you hear someone's going to run a one hundred mile race, you go, that, yeah, that's cute. Uh, but I'm going to run 200 miles. And they're like, that's not even possible. It's the same as the four-minute mile. Right. Someone runs the 200 miles. They're like, holy shit. I can't believe a guy ran for three days. He ran 200 miles. Yeah, yeah. And then someone like Courtney comes along and goes, I'm going to do it in two days. Yeah, and they're yeah. like, what? And then yeah. she runs She runs it in two days. And then someone, they're talking about now doing a 500-mile ultramarathon. Yeah. but And what I find amazing, who? what's the athlete look like? Who completes that? Do you know what I mean? It's, well, it's Courtney's like very thin. She's very light and very mm. thin. And, mm. you know, she's not the type of person that would win 
uh, a regular marathon. This is what was interesting. My friend Cam Haynes, who also runs these, he, he ran the. Uh, and he's quite. He's big. pretty jacked. Yeah, yeah, he works. He lifts a lot. Yeah, yeah. But he cuts a lot of body weight when he does those. Okay. But the way he does it is, he's a hard man. He's yeah. what I was talking about. Like these people have darkness. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's got some darkness. He just like he'll burn three thousand calories, eat two thousand. And so he'll force his body to eat itself. Right. And so he drops down to the 160-something pound range, and then that's what he likes to weigh. When he normally walks around like 185, he's pretty built. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But then he drops way down. He'll lose like 20 pounds of muscle because he's always lean. He's not losing body fat. He's just forcing his body to literally eat itself. Just through mental toughness. But he's still quite big. Yeah. Even, even when he's turning up on the start line and he's lost that, he's mm -hmm. still big for an endurance. For an endurance athlete. He's amazing. But maybe that's one of the reasons why he doesn't win these things. He comes in like third, fourth. I mean, and also, you know, he hasn't been doing it as long as them and he's 51 years old now. Wow. But he's an animal, man. And this is just that that kind of mental fortitude that it takes to do one of those things or to do what you did yeah. it's a very unusual kind of drive and people are very excited by that drive and they're very intrigued by it and it's very attractive it's very attractive to attempt to do it's very attractive to pay attention to and watch because mm. everyone knows how difficult it is. it's undeniably difficult like if someone says you talk to someone who doesn't know how to run at all. They don't do anything. They just sit on the couch. Mm. You go, hey, man, get up. Get up. We're going to run three miles. Like, fuck. At the end of that three miles, they will collapse. They'll lay down their back. Their heart would be pounding. Their chest would be heaving. Mm. So they know that's hard. Everybody knows that's hard. Everybody at one point in their life has run until they're exhausted, mm. whether it's 500 yards or five miles or whatever every from the, when you were a kid there's always been a moment where we tested ourselves so we're familiar with that feeling of not being able to go on yeah. so when they see a guy like you who went through that feeling for six <laughs> fucking months or was it five months total five, five, five months. months five months man five man. months is an insane amount of time it, it is now upon the June, <laughs> July, August, September, October, November. You're into the sixth fucking month when you right. stop. That's insane. But but what you just said there, like, do you think, and this is again, because I had 12 hours to think every day. Do you think it is unusual or do you think that we now think it's unusual because society has got real comfortable? You know, and I, I maintained that... Stuff that I was doing with salt tongue and everything, ancestors, do you not think they would have just thought, you know, that's, that's just Monday? You know, that's just. I don't <laughs> think anybody ever thought that was just Monday. No, I don't think they would have forced themselves to do that because there's no biological or evolutionary need to do that. It's not like you could swim for 12 hours a day and get across the channel and get to a place where there's better fruit. Right. You know, our, our, I don't think our ancestors ever did that. I, th I right. definitely think they did. What is that um, type of uh, hunting? There's, a, there's actually a term for endurance it. Endurance hunting. Well, yeah. they, they run an animal down. I don't think it's called endurance hunting. I think it's, there's another term for it. But they will literally, like if you take an antelope, yeah. they don't have sweat glands. Yeah. And so they can run far faster than us, but it comes a point in time when they overheat. Mm. So if you just stay on them, persistence hunting? That's Oh, other. that was it. That's, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, I named it right when you pulled it up. Damn. <laughs> um Persistence hunting is, and you see it in these, uh, a lot of these African men who go on to be phenomenal endurance runners. Mm -hmm. I mean, they win marathons left and right, and there's particular parts of Africa that produce incredible runners. And they think a lot, there was a really, there's a cut and run 
is a fantastic episode of Radio Lab that details these men from this one certain part in Africa. I forget where it is, but see if you pull that up. But this uh, this episode detailed the horrific circumcision rituals that these men had to endure right. where they cut their dick and uh, they, they stick a stick through it and then they make them crawl through thorns naked. Right? I, yeah. So I saw that there's a guy uh, back in, uh, I think it's uh, Bruce Parry, so he's an adventurer. He has done everything you can think of, every tribal initiation, and that's the one that he refused to Good do. Good for him. Keep your dick intact. <laughs> Don't let those crazy guys cut your dick. <laughs> the San are the oldest inhabitants of Southern Africa where they have lived for almost 20,000 years. The term San is commonly used to refer to a diverse group, diverse group of hunter-gatherers living in South Africa who share historical linguistic mm. connections. Many now accept the term Bushman or San. Is that that's mm. Bushman hunting? Is that from the um, Radio I, Lab thing? Yeah, it's, uh, from that's the what they call themselves. BBC article here, which I would imagine. Yeah, is that the same? That. But is that the same with the uh, the horrible circumcision ritual? <laughs> I'll double check. Yeah, the oh, it's fucking horrible. But they were arguing in the the when they were discussing it, and one of the guys who was on it, who had actually been through it, and now I believe he lives, he lives uh, maybe he lives in America, but he was saying he would never have his his children go through that. But he, but it made him who he is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the 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 idea was that not only are these guys physically gifted. Mm. But they also have unbelievable, unbelievable pain tolerance mm. and mental endurance and just mental toughness. Mm. And that this is one of the reasons why they become so successful mm. is that the ability to push a pace for two plus miles or whatever it is their marathon time is not just dependent upon their physical ability, mm. but also dependent upon their ability to endure pain, mm. like to force themselves past the, you know, anyone can kind of trot along at a really leisurely pace and it's not painful. Mm. But if you're going hard, mm. you know, you're really going hard. This is it? the radio lab. It's, it's Kenya. A, yeah. It's the yeah. Um, Kapogi, I think is. Ah, uh, there we go. Where is it? So um, it, before you, uh, I mean, well, I've, I've kind of described it, but they, they describe it even more horrific detail in the podcast. It's so, it, and that almost crosses over to, I mean, again, I'm not advocating what you just, right. do, you know, <laughs> genitalia mutilation. <laughs> I'm not advocating that. But there's that idea of adversity training that like if you're ever in the gym, it's like what you're training and it's just like strength. What you're training? Speed. And this is why, you know, I'm a huge fan of Wim Hof because so often what he's doing when he's submerged in ice cold, it's like, well, I'm training my capillaries. Yeah. And it's like, what do you mean you're training your capillaries? And it's these, we're atrophying these age old inbuilt mechanisms. So mm. again, I'm not advocating, you know, what you genitalia right. mean? I know what you're saying. But do you're you advocating tolerance? Yeah, do training you tolerance. And do you think that I, that's maybe missing? I mean, again, looking at MMA, like maybe that you you see, you know, whether it's uh, you know Muay Thai and they're like kicking trees and stuff. Yeah, granted, that's you know making dents of bones and stuff. But do you think there's that element as well? Mm -hmm. You know, when you look at um, what what was it? Um, I've forgotten what it was now, but you just start looking at just putting people in high stress situations just to see how they're going to cope. Like John Fitch, he was like notorious for letting people almost try and submit him and mm -hmm. then they'd tire themselves out. He was just completely calm. And then would sort of I maintain that that's, that really depends on who's choking you. Because <laughs> Josh Berkman <laughs> choked him completely unconscious. Okay, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, Berkman's got a hell of a guillotine, and uh, John Fitch shot in on him, and Berkman caught him in the guillotine and just put right. him to sleep in the first round. Right. I think there's 
there's guys that can just put you to sleep. Right, okay. If you think that you can get away with that shit with like a Marcelo Garcia, you're going to wake up going, what happened? Re okay. Yeah. Okay. But well, most guys won't be able to choke you. So to that point, you know, and again, I'm catching up on 157 days of UFC. You know, mm -hmm. so I was actually out at sea with uh, McGregor and Khabib. But on that note, do you think he tapped premature? Do you think there was Oh, he that? went to sleep. McGregor went to sleep. Oh, that and that fight. Yeah, I thought yeah, you yeah. meant John Fish and just, Josh Burke. Yeah, no, no. I mean, um, it was a neck crank, right? No, he did not tap premature. Um, he did not defend it, though. Okay. Here's the deal. He was done. He was beaten down. Khabib fucked him up. Khabib smashed him. But there was a lot of people that don't train. And this was very frustrating to me. Okay. There was many people that don't train that think that that was something that you shouldn't tap to. Right. They're they're out of their fucking mind. Okay, that okay. is what's called a fulcrum choke. That's okay. Okay, and it's it's not necessarily a choke, but it is. It chokes you, but it it really feels like your fucking head's gonna pop off. Right. What he's doing is he's wrapping around the face, and you don't have to even go under the jaw. You can right. get it on the chin, especially if you're as strong as Khabib. Then you clamp your hands together, and you're pressing your forearm yeah. against his back. So you've got this, and you get the forearm against his back, and you're doing this. It's just levers. And your fucking head is just like... <laughs> it's, and Khabib is so right. strong. His gra he's been grappling since he was a baby. Right. All of his muscles are designed to squeeze and crush and smash. Mm. And he gets a hold of your neck in that position, and he's got that forearm pressed against your back. See if you can find an image of the actual uh, submission. You could really clearly see what he's doing. Yeah. And then there was a video where Dean Lister and my friend Hans Molenkamp described it. I was pulling that up, and it's been taken off Instagram for some reason. That video? Yeah. The Hans Molenkamp, Dean Lister video? Yeah, I don't know why. Someone why? Would, maybe someone reposted it, and that link is gone, but yeah. Huh. Um, did you check Dean Lister's? That's so weird. Mm. wonder why anybody would take that down. Um, anyway. It, there's guys who could fuck your face up without even going under the neck. A good example. Here's another good example. Just pull this up. I got, I got, you got it? It's okay. not the one from right after the fight, but he's still describing it. Oh, okay. Oh, this is perfect. This is perfect. So Dean Lister, who's a, a world champion, Brazilian jiu-jitsu black belt, as legit as it gets. And this is my friend Hans Molenkamp. He's also a Brazilian jiu-jitsu black belt. And see, see, this is exactly what Khabib did. See how his forearm is pressed against the back? And the arm is under the chin. See, the difference is what Dean is doing, he can't even help himself. He's immediately putting his arms, his hands on the arm that's choking him. That's what you're supposed to do. Now, if you look at what Connor did, Connor just waited until he couldn't take it anymore and tapped. Right, right, when right. When you see Connor, both of his arms are down. He's getting his neck cranked, and right. he doesn't do this. Right. That's what you're supposed to do. You're supposed okay. to do two on one, and then you drop down. Like, look at this. See what he's doing there? He's tapping. But see where his left arm is? Okay, okay, yeah, yeah, That yeah, left yeah. arm should not, you, you, can't, you can't do that. See, that is a perfect example of the fulcrum choke. See how he's doing that? Pressing his forearm against the back, squeezing the head. It's, it's a neck crank. It's a choke. There's a lot of shit going on there. It doesn't have to be under the chin. It could just be on your face, and you're mm. going to get fucked up. So all those folks out there that were saying that it wasn't a choke need to go have someone apply that to them. And, okay. and they need to start training jujitsu and stop fucking talking about MMA submissions because they, they don't that right. that 
You're gonna tap, bitch. <laughs> Don't say you're not gonna tap. You're gonna fucking tap. Right. Now, not right. everybody's gonna tap from that because other people, unlike Connor, are gonna be better at defending that. They're gonna great. Like you get a hold of a world class Brazilian Jiu Jitsu black belt who's also an MMA fighter, like um, like Vinny Magalhaes. He's gonna grab a hold of that. He's gonna defend properly. He's gonna adjust. He's gonna try to get out of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He might have to tap if someone gets him in it. I mean, he people tap, but he's he's not gonna just have one arm posted mm. that's just not the right way to handle it but i think that's because connor had eaten bombs well i was about to ask so that's all technical do you so you yes. think it, so there's that almost as, as a i don't know like a continuum there's mm -hmm. technical yes which you've just you know brilliant. and then and again i should point out you know again i'm a complete layman when it comes to all mixed martial arts but i find it fascinating the this adversity training aspect so you were just saying he was eating bombs before that would would there would it have helped? You know that if he wasn't, do you know what I mean? That where where does it cross over from being? Technical? It would help if he wasn't as tired. So like if that choke was applied during the first few seconds or minutes of the okay. first round, I think he probably would have had a good chance to survive. Okay, okay. What's being going on? Put on Dean Lister. It's an Ezekiel choke, and he's not. It's not being done. Well, oh, but apparently. this is a diff. This is not an Ezekiel choke. <laughs> this is this is. Uh, what this is is, I mean, it's kind of an Ezekiel. But see where his hand is. You got to really get underneath. See his left hand. That left hand's got to go not just there. It's got to go under the chin. That's not good enough for a guy like Dean. You go, okay? Now it's pretty fucking tight. Now it's tight, and he's got to get further and further in. The further that left arm gets into Gene's neck, mm. the more more there's going to be a possibility of him choking. But. Dean has been fucking choked his whole life, which is, but I do have to say that Josh Barnett made him tap, and Josh Barnett is like one of the few guys that's made Dean Lister tap, and I think the first time he tapped in a decade, wow. and Josh Barnett got him in a scarf hold, um, and I th that was in Metamorris, and Josh Barnett, who is, uh, he's a catch wrestling specialist, yeah, go to the very end of it here, Josh Barnett gets a hold of Dean's, he gets it, see in this position right here, he's in side control, which is just impressive enough that Josh is able to do this with a guy like Dean Lister, but then he gets him in what's, uh, I don't, he, he probably has a different name for it, but it's, uh, we, we used to call it judo side control. It's quite a bit further down on this. You gotta keep going, keep going, keep going, keep going. All the way to the end. So he gets a hold of his He's got a head and arm choke. Here it is. Here it is. So he's got his head and his arm trapped together. And Josh, who's an enormously powerful person, is really neck cranking him as much as anything. And then Dean was forced to tap. But this is at the end of a long match. And, you know, it could have been exhaustion might have played a part in it. It most certainly was Josh's skill and his, his ability to apply that technique. But the point is, is a guy like Dean Lister, you're not going to tap that guy easy. But this is, and, and again, again it, it, with sort of holding my hands up saying I'm so sort of naive, a huge fan of, of MMA, but not necessarily uh, any of the technical aspects. But what I love is when you look at someone like, you know, Nick Diaz or Michael Bisping, mm -hmm. you know, people don't understand his conditioning and he will just wear people down. Massive mental toughness too. What, what Bisping has is just insane mental toughness. You know, Bisping basically has one eye. Wow! If you look at his eyes, his one of his eye actually, and I hope he can get surgery on it now because he is retired. He has oil like 
embedded in his eye wow. to protect his retina because it's been torn so many times. It's been wow. torn. He had surgery on it. He had a repair. Torn again. His right eye is fucked up, man. Right. And one of the reasons why he retired is he started to see some irregularities in his vision in his left eye. So his good eye was fucking up, too. But, I mean, Michael Bisping is a fucking animal. I mean, he is, he is about as tough as it gets. And he's not like a spectacularly physically talented guy like a John Jones or mm. Yoel Romero, who's just this unbelievable specimen. Mm. Michael's, uh, you know, a, a really good athlete, unquestionably, but he's just tough, just yeah. fucking tough. So to answer your question, there's, there's this, and you could speak to this, because what you're talking about, the, the ability to overcome adversity, like some people... When you were talking about that fatigue is an emotionally driven thing, that there's this feeling that you get and you can give into that feeling where you're like, oh my God, I'm fuck, I fucking can't do this anymore. And some people are more susceptible to that than others and they give into it quickly. I mean, mm. for a person, here's, here's where you can experience this, like what is, whether or not your mindset um, can affect your, your endurance. Get on a treadmill or a stationary bike or whatever you want to do for cardio. And then listen to a really kick-ass song. And put on headphones and that mm -hmm. song comes on and you just can't fucking... Yeah, you can just go. There's something about that. And even if you're tired, even if you're tired and you've put on a good song, you're like, fuck that, we're going to keep going. Like... The, the, nothing has happened. You haven't taken in any kind of a supplement or any kind of a, a stimulant. You haven't gotten an injection in your body or you're not sucking on some kind of new gas. Mm. Your body's exactly the same. But through the motivation that you're getting from this music, the emotional stimulation, you're just like, fuck that. We're going to keep going. Yeah. And you can keep going. Not only can you keep going, you can go faster. You can push harder. You can find these reserves. So the idea is that these reserves are always there. You have to be able to achieve the state of mind that you achieve when you hear a really good song. Mm. You know? And that's true that I think people don't understand you are the alchemist of your own body that, you know, in terms of neurotransmitters, chemical signals in the brain, you can impact those. Sometimes, yeah, you need external influences. Music, as you spoke about, sometimes, you know, caffeine. But when you start to control them, yeah, it can be so powerful. Some people do it naturally, I suppose. Yeah. And they've just got it inbuilt but when you start to train and i think it's only now that we're we're going down that route and looking at that as a you know until previously it was one of those intangibles you mm. know that you you, you kind of underappreciate it in any sport and now we're going oh okay yeah you know that person over there is you know that mental fortitude or what you're talking about there is maybe their ability to alter their own chemistry biochemical reactions to the body and yeah there's something real that happens right yeah like yep. when you hear a song and you get excited, like whatever that, yeah, whatever that that burst is, it yeah. seems like a real, like if that was a pill and you took it, you'd be like, oh, this works. Absolutely. And and the thing is, is it's been around years. When you look at like, um, you know, Marcus Aurelius uh, meditations or Stoic philosophy, and they're talking about, you know, dialogue being both external, internal. So the, the conversations that go on inside your own head are just as mm. important as the conversations you have with other people. So we've understood this for years. But it's only just now that we're trying to kind of apply a little bit of science to it, looking at the psychology and this mind-body connection. But the fact is, yeah, some of the greatest ancient Stoics, they were trying to figure out as well. Right. And when you can start to tap into that, well, that can become... And it, and it might be a particular song. You know, it might yeah. be a particular something. You know, if you get into... 
you go into a gym or that you've got a friend that can bring that out of you again yeah. you know my um training back home so you know andy bolton who was the the first guy to deadlift a thousand pounds i mean jesus yeah yeah i a mean a thousand pounds yeah i mean the the clip when you see it and he he, he pulls a thousand pounds for it's, it's since been beaten by eddie hall who did uh, half a ton so he what the fuck eddie <laughs> But isn't so half a ton a thousand pounds? A little bit less. So I, th I think a thousand pounds. I don't know. Like, what's that? Four. four I thought a ton was two thousand pounds, isn't it? So yeah, uh, Eddie. What's a thousand pounds in kilos? Oh, you're trying to do kilos. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So sorry, the two. So yeah, there was oh. two metrics there. So Andy Bolton, which was a little bit. Two point two kilos per pound. No, two point so two like pounds four, per four. kilo. Yeah. yeah. And then, yeah, and when you see him, I mean, this is what I love when you start looking. Oh, at, Jesus Christ. So this is Eddie. That's his, that's his half the time. How the fuck are his knees staying together right there? You look, that is obscene. If you look at how big his body is and how normal size his knees are, yeah. that's like, look at the bones in his knees. They look so normal. Yeah. I mean, that, that. Look at all these fucking people. I know, it's unbelievable. Like, pick it up. <laughs> pick it up. It's unbelievable. Oh, my God. So when those guys retire, how fucked up are their bodies? I would, you know, Eddie's, what's brilliant about Eddie? the beast tattooed his, <laughs> inside of his arms. Who's going to argue with him? Yeah, <laughs> bro. Yeah, yeah, you're a fucking beast. His, his nose, nose is bleeding. Bleed. Yeah. Oh, that's right, right? His nose started spraying blood while he was, yeah. was that him or another guy? Though, I think you were. There was I another video. The, yeah, 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 the Arnold Classic. I've forgotten his name. He was Russian. And yeah, just that shit was wild. Flight. But I mean, Eddie, again, so strength, especially with the deadlift, mm -hmm. such a simple movement. And, and. You know, the deadlift is just strength is your body's ability to generate force, mm -hmm. you know, so it's neuromuscular. It's like what your, your brain is telling your body. So that goes back to that strength deficit right. that we were talking about. You're basically saying to your, your body, recruit every single muscle fiber possible and work in conjunctions with ligaments and tendons and let's get half a ton off the floor. Exactly right, but when you look and 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 certainly with with Andy Bolton's a thousand pound lift, he had his friend in his face and he's there going, come on, come on, he's hitting him in the face <laughs> and they're getting. So when we were talking earlier about again strength deficit is is that sort of deficit between what you can voluntarily contract and involuntary contract that was him obviously voluntarily contracting no one was electrocuting in that particular one but they're there and you do anything that you can before you actually step out onto that platform and now i mean he would have just been you know completely written off after that that sort of adrenal dump afterwards yeah. and fatigue you know emotionally but and so you have to you have to think about that. I've forgotten who said it now. It might have been Pavel, but they said, you know, uh, save fatigue for competition. And I know you've spoken mm, about that before. Stop. Yeah. Um, I can't remember who you were speaking Pavel's to. Pavel's a fascinating guy with his concepts. Amazing. Yeah. yeah. So so ahead of the curve. And I know you were talking to, I can't remember who it was now, talking about farmer's strength and that ability to stop short every single day. So never necessarily going to complete failure. Mm. Um, but I think it was for us. For us, a hobby? I think it was, yeah. yeah. Um, talking about continually kind of avoiding that exhaustion phase mm -hmm. and solely existing in the adaptation phase. Yes. So, you know, I mean, this goes back to Selye, sort of 1936, a Hungarian physician who found, you know, you give, uh, you know, took some lab rats, give them a lethal dose of poison, they kill over and die. But he found by giving them a little bit of poison, a little bit more, a little bit more, that they built up this intolerance to it. Uh, mm. That was the general adaptation syndrome. But it was from that that we discovered stress and stimuli is the key to any adaptation. And it wasn't until the strength and conditioning community cottoned onto that. And we started to think, okay, how can we apply stress and stimuli to the body to bring about a desired result? And I think certainly now, I think that's kind of 
overlooked in sport but certainly the wider fitness industry that you know it's 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 easy now in very sort of marketing driven to say get fit in you know five easy steps or right. you know whereas the reality is you know it's get fit in eight months after a lot of stress and stimuli yeah that's it, but that get fit in five easy steps is really just for it's just a gimmick to get people who don't actually work out to get involved it is, and, but, but, and that's why I love what you broadcast, and, and even with the Sober October and stuff. I mean, I'm a huge fan of Bert, but people, and, and I know he's, he's so funny, and everyone loves Bert, but he's a beast as well. I mean, when, to rock up and just do a marathon, and again, yeah. go back to power-to-weight ratio, what he did was amazing. And you're I, saying he's really fat, right? That's what you're no, saying? No, no, I'm, I'm not saying he's fat. That's never what you're say, saying, power-to-weight. That's saying, okay, wink, wink. I, was, I got you. No, you're not saying that. No, I get it. I get it, bro. He's a burly guy. He's, he's a well-built. That's a nice way of he's saying a, fat. He is a well-built male. Somebody took a picture of my face on Bert's body, <laughs> and I fucking threw up. I'm like, oh, my God, I, but what if? I, but what if? I, I, <laughs> I'm like no, yeah. He uh, likes to drink, and he still he's he is a beast because he, he, despite the fact that he doesn't look like Rich Roll, he still can keep going. And people, and I know he was he was very entertaining with the marathon and stuff. But yeah. I was actually watching that as the sports scientist in me was like. That's amazing, and no one's talking about that. His his power to weight ratio, and he's still running that marathon. Something that, and and yeah. So for as as funny and as entertaining as it was to watch, I honestly was like, "But that's amazing." What's more amazing is Ari, honestly, because Ari really didn't work out. Really, and Ari came in second place, and he came in second place by only a thousand points, which is uh, one day I got a thousand points in a day. So he was really only a thousand points behind me. Wow. But it's a crazy day. That's like a seven hours of work in a day or at least six and a half hours of work in a day and right. a lot of it at 80 percent of your max heart rate but he still he wasn't doing anything before this thing started and he was the first one to figure out that you get the same amount of points for 80 percent of your max heart rate as you do for 90 right. i thought you get more for 90 so i was just trying to kill myself yeah, every yeah, day yeah. and then i was only being able to come up with like 230 points and and somewhere along those lines, because I was, I would max out. I was doing like 90% of my max heart rate for like 30, 35 minutes. I was like exhausted. And then Ari figured out that 80 points pays just as much. Right. And so he started watching movies while he was on an elliptical machine. And that, that just turned the whole thing into this sort of steady, yeah. not fast marathon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which was really fascinating because I never exercised like that before and it changed my endurance radically over yeah. a month. Yeah, yeah. What's interesting is it changed my endurance in things that are explosive like kickboxing. Okay. What well, so so having that aerobic base yes. helps with something explosive. How did it, you it find that? It helped a lot. How Because just... I would mix that in. Wow. So I would do I would do after a while we were doing so much exercise that I had to do different things or I would get bored. Mm. So I would do a circuit of the elliptical machine and then I would follow the elliptical machine with um uh or, or I would do I would run I would on some days I'd either run elliptical machine kickbox mm. and on other days I would do the echo bike which is an airdyne machine that Rogue makes mm -hmm. and then I would do the rowing machine and then I would do the Versa climber and then I added in that air runner treadmill which is what is it called air assault I think air assault treadmill yeah which is a treadmill that you power yourself you you your feet pushing on it and mm. pulling it is what makes it go fast. It's not like a treadmill that you keep up with. It's actually more difficult than actual running. Right, right, right. 13% like more difficult than actual running on the street. So 
I, I was going crazy. I, I couldn't do the same things over and over again, so I kept mixing them up. Yeah, yeah. And when I would mix them up, by the end of the month, my kickboxing was, I had way more endurance. Mm. Like I could do 10 hard rounds mm. going three minutes each round, and then I would recover in between rounds, the one minute in between rounds, I'd recover quick. Mm. Like my, because I'm wearing a heart rate monitor, I'm watching my heart rate dip. Yeah, yeah. It was dipping really quickly, and yeah. then I had all this energy yeah. and it was madness. Like everything was changing. Like my, my capacity for work changed, everything adapted. I got a little dehydrated one time and I had pissed. It looked like iced tea, which is not good. So I started pan pan <clears throat> panicking and wondering about things like rhabdomyolysis and yeah, kidney failure. But yeah. I didn't have anything wrong with that. It was just a little yeah. bit of dehydration. But, but, but what's interesting, to go back to what we were talking about there, you've just perfectly described that idea of, of giving a clear cellular signal to the body. So uh, polarized training, you familiar yes. with you know, that 80-20 that you do 80% of your, you know, your work, your training in that aerobic realm where you can keep doing that. It's, you're not going to overtrain there. You're going to avoid that exhaustion phase. Mm -hmm. you know, so cellular indestructible rats, you know, you're not going to keel over and die from a, a, a lethal dose of stress and stimuli. Right. But then over here, you know, you would, that 20%, it was powerful. It was kickboxing. So there you're mm -hmm. working technique, but you're fresh. So you're drilling motor patterns that are completely fresh and not fatigued because you're doing this 80% on an elliptical trainer while watching a movie. Mm -hmm. So you're, you're keeping the two completely separate. Yes. But considering the body in its entirety that when it comes together, you've created a more powerful version of yourself. And I think it was interesting what you just said there about um, recovery between bouts as well. So when you start looking at uh, strongman training, you know, the some of the strongest guys and one of the strongest guys in the world all understood the benefits of, of cardiorespiratory training. You look at, again, Jeff Capes, um, two-time world's strongest man, was running fell races and marathons at 25 What's stone. a fell race? A fell race is, it's, it's, yeah, it's quite specific to England. So it's kind of trail running, uh -huh. but we call them fell running because you're kind of going through bogs and marshes and... Felled you, trees? Not, not necessarily felled trees, but just mm. kind of the terrain's a little bit right. different from a trail run. Right. So he was doing that. When you look at uh, Bill Kazmaier, again, world's strongest man, a power lifter, but understood the benefits of, of cardiorespiratory training to improve his recovery between sets. Brian Shaw as well, one of the, uh, you know, the sort of, uh, you know, the newest uh, sort of strong man and uh, former basketball player. You know, so he had that cardiorespiratory endurance, that base, that aerobic base. And then he built this incredible strength on top of that aerobic foundation. Mm. Goes back again to whether, you know, they knew it or not, they were almost creating an athlete like they were creating athletes back in uh, the sort of Soviet Union era when they were taking athletes going, right, you're giving me a kid. And I don't know if he's strong, quick, good at running, running fast or running far. I don't know. So we're going to build this aerobic neuromuscular base. And when they show any sort of genetic potential to be strong, quick, whatever, we're going to hone in on that. And that's only when we're going to get specific. And you're almost doing that now. You know, and certainly Brian Shaw did it. Again, you look, you look long through all of the best athletes in the world. They've all followed this blueprint. But it's only now that we're kind of dissecting that and saying, oh, okay, I'm making it a bit more purposeful. Who's this gentleman? There we go. There's Brian Shaw. He, so yeah, basketball. What's wrong with his legs? They're all swollen. <laughs> but I mean, even now, as well, oh, I tell you what, Jamie, if it's possible, actually, I mean, Brian Shaw, he uh, accidentally, you must have seen this clip, set the uh, indoor rowing record. For, I think it was for a... Look at the size of this motherfucker. Oh, my God. And he rocks... Converse All Stars. Look at that. He set the. There's a. There's a clip on YouTube. Look at that. Man, my man's wearing chucks. 
he sets there's a clip on YouTube where he sets the um, the rowing record, the indoor rowing record, just and it was just because he yeah there we go he didn't know he was setting it no so what <laughs> he's basically down there he's rowing and it sounds like someone started an engine Let and it's there just going rub, 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 like this here you go. Let me hear this. So this, they've just looked. He rose with a mouthpiece. Look, the whole thing, they have to hold it down in the end because it's coming out of the floor. Jesus Christ. These guys are standing on it. It sounds like a like just an that's a jet engine, right? Well, all that power from his legs, Exactly. Man. Well, no, and he's bare. I mean, that technique as well. I mean, I, I hope Brian doesn't mind me saying it's not necessarily, you know, Olympic rowing technique. But he doesn't need it because he's just got silly power. So what there you is go. the correct the technique? So the hundred, well, there's a catch phase and it's more, you're, you're almost treating it more like a deadlift where you're using your larger leg muscles where... Oh, Jesus, look at him go. There you go. And they had to put weights on it. Oh, my God, this guy's <laughs> a fucking savage. This he's is so crazy to watch. Unbelievable. The amount of force he can generate. He looks like a very tall man, too. He's huge. How big is this guy? Six, eight, six, yeah. nine. Something. So that helps too, right? Because the long stroke. Absolutely. It's just pure power. But anyway, so they found out they, during this session, I believe what happened is they said, well, you know, a, a rower shouldn't make that sort of noise. There you go, six foot. He's, he's basically two people put together. He's six one. foot what? 400 and what? <laughs> six foot eight, 425 pounds. That's two big guys strapped together in one body. He's almost 200 pounds above the UFC head. <laughs> Heavyweight limit. Do you know how insane that is? UFC heavyweight limit is 265. He's almost 200 pounds too heavy to fight in the heavyweight division of the UFC. Motherfucker. Basketball. Basketball background. And, and he still, look, he didn't know that he was going to set the world record for rowing. So the rowing record, there you go. His one was 12.8. I believe it was 13.08. So he's just, he's broke the rowing record. But because he had that neuro, neuromuscular background that they said, hey, Brian, you're big and powerful. Just, this is a rowing machine. Right. He went, oh, okay. And it's like, oh, there you go. Congratulations. There's a world record. Wow. So it's that base that I think so often I've heard you speak about and certainly Eddie as well talking about um, breakdancers making great, yes. you know, BJJ. And again, whether you know or not, they had that neuromuscular foundation. They understood proprioception, where the mm -hmm. ligaments tends, everything should work. Right. Whereas if you had someone with a similar work capacity or someone of the same age, everything was the same, but they didn't have that neuromuscular efficiency. You'd say, okay, and again, this is me so naively. Again, I'm, I, I certainly don't claim to know anything about BJJ, but you go, okay, this is an arm bar this is and they kind of go okay let me try and figure this out and you mm -hmm. can see them it's like a rubik's cube they're trying to piece it together but you get someone again like brian and you go okay this is bjj or something quite complex that requires you and he i'm not saying well he wouldn't even fight <laughs> it's too, he's too heavy <laughs> they'd have to <laughs> open up the super heavyweight division but <laughs> he's doing a similar movement to deadlifts which is very common it is. And he's, when you, he's used to that movement. It is, yeah. yeah, it is. But I suppose where you saw him, you know, that wasn't actually, there was no extension of the back. Right. He was bent over just ripping. There's another one, again, even to use Brian as an example, where he does, uh, I believe, I can't remember the name of the wad now, but he went up um, and Thor, as well, another strongman, did a, uh, I think it was a, I might have clean and jerk. There was a wad that was predominantly clean and jerk, and there was this amazing crossfitter. Technique was beautiful, disappearing under the bar, bang, over his head. It was amazing to watch. And I think it was Thor or Brian Shaw went in, and just instead of a clean and jerk, and Joe, honestly, he just basically upright rose the whole thing. And <laughs> complete. And they were like, well, that's not a 
clean and jerk, but you just set a record <laughs> again. So there's that element. And right. To use an example as well with with the like oh here that. we go here we go oh my god that's insane. <laughs> but wait, hopefully there's a cr- that look, is insane. Oh no, okay, there's another strong one. But there is uh, there's another one of those where you see the CrossFitter with this amazing, beautiful technique. <laughs> he's doing it. He's so far from his chest. It's crazy <laughs> that he's doing it like that. And what is that? Two hundred and twenty-five pounds? Is that I, what that I is? I don't actually know what that particular weight what is. What in the fucking <laughs> shit? That is so crazy that he could do that. Look at he's doing so many reps. Right, right. That is insane. But he doesn't have a pause. No, but but okay. So that's meant to be a cleaning jerk. I know. So, so that's what I mean about that neuromuscular efficiency. That he's gone. Okay, here's a new sport. Come get involved. And he's gone. Okay, I see the rules of your sport, but I'm going to do it my way. And um, and but does can. it count? Well, yeah, I suppose. I mean, if that wad is just put the weight above your head, um, like that guy did it normal that time right there. That's a yeah, normal one. Yeah. Yeah. But there's Jesus like again, Christ. there's um, if you put in you know Thor uh, uh, versus CrossFit, then it will probably come up, and you get to see an amazing crisp technique. Mm. Uh, and then equally, um, Thor is basically doing uh, what what Brian was doing just there. Um, oh, so here you go. So this is they keep putting on weight until one of them. I, th- I believe the competition here is you keep putting. On, yeah, there you go. CrossFit versus the mountain. So amazing technique disappears under the bar. You know, incredible. And then I think you know Thor will eventually come in and give it a go and basically just um, upright rows. Here we go. So you saw that, you know, disappears under <laughs> yes. the bar. Speed of movement. Perfect. Amazing. And then Thor, come, come and have a go at this. And uh, this is what he, he produces. <laughs> so <laughs> there's that neuromuscular efficiency. There. Well, it's just mad strength. It too. is. It is. I mean, you could do that too if you just had an empty bar. <laughs> You know what I mean? Like that kind of person, the kind of person that can do that. When you think about him deadlifting a thousand pounds or any of these guys that can deadlift in insane numbers, just the whole machine can generate so much force. Yeah. Yeah. And that and that's it though. It's it is they're able to do that again because of that foundation. They, yes. their, their body can generate that force. And then you say, here's a new movement. Yes. And you can see them look at, you know, like for that example. Okay, so that's a clean and jerk. Mm-hmm. Okay, I can't figure that out, but I think I've found a way. You know, well, it also I- lends credence to the concept that deadlifts is like the mother of all exercises because it really does work all your muscle groups. Yeah, yeah. And if you can get really strong at deadlifts, I mean, it really does enhance almost any single athletic endeavor you participate in. Yeah, yeah. And I think, again, that's sort of been lost a little bit along the way that, that you know, getting the joints, ligaments, muscles, everything to work cohesively. Yeah. And when you do that through your training, you can pretty much apply to anything. So I think that's why... I mean, I, again, I used to swim ages, ages ago, way back in the day, but I was never going to make sort of a, elite standard. I'm, you know, five, nine on a good day, maybe. I'm built like a hobbit. So everyone else <laughs> is just growing. So long to- and graceful. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. So, so I ended up, again, almost accidentally going into strength training. I, I played water polo in the end um, to a, a fairly good level. So I, I was doing that. But again, I just got beaten up. I was... 16 playing in the seniors league and you know just big guys with beards just beating me up you know it's interesting what you were talking about earlier is in terms of mental fortitude and your ability to adapt and your ability to overcome i I wonder if we're ever going to figure out a way to measure that like to measure in mental endurance or measure mental capacity or mental stimulation you know you can measure your vo2 max Mm. and you know what the body's capable of 
I wonder if there's a way, like when someone does hear a great song and it kicks in, whether it's through fMRI or yeah. any other type of detection device where they can figure out a way, oh, this part of your brain is firing. Yeah. Let's concentrate on building up the the activation of that part of that brain of the brain like like a muscle mm. like think of that endurance or think of that motivation as like maybe even a mantra that you can call upon because yeah. you call upon it all the time and you can recreate that state yeah i mean i i think on on that point certainly over in in britain at the moment so um uh, basically, uh, women for the first time can actually um, apply and be in the special forces. So at the moment, it's really, really interesting because um, speaking to suddenly the Royal Marines, they were saying, we've got hundreds of years that if you hand us 500 young fit men, we can say they need to be this weight, this tall. And if you give us them, we've got years and years of experience of putting them through this training system of mental and physical fortitude, everything down in, in Limstone. It's the, the, the training center of the Royal Marines. Um, we go on this endurance course. We go on a, a 30 mile yomp with a backpack, everything. And by the end of 32 weeks, that's what it takes uh, to be a Royal Marine to get your Green Beret. After 32 weeks, we can take you from being completely not sedentary, but unfit to being a Royal Marine. And that's one thing they pride themselves on. But now... What they're saying is obviously, you know, females can now apply to the special forces. And what they find so interesting is, and I certainly do as well, is what, what does that look like for a female Royal Marine? You know, what does that look like for mm. a female? So, and again, to go back, I mean, I, I wrote an article ages ago, um, Run Like a Girl. And I was saying, I want to run like a girl. You know, some of, some of my best training partners are female and they, their perception to fatigue is unbelievable. That's purely anecdotal, but also as well, when you look at the top tier of ultramarathon runners and swimming as well, Diana Naid, first to go from uh, Florida to uh, Cuba to Florida, you know, incredible. Like she was getting stung by Portuguese manawas and just unbelievable. Mm. So it's purely anecdotal, but now they're saying, you know, wh why is it that, that certain female athletes have a, a greater tolerancy to pain? And I think to your point, if we can start to quantify that, because there are biological differences. Yes. If you take men, you know, high testosterone can have an impact on high hemoglobin, generate muscle force, all of these things. But, but I think if we could quantify why it is that certain female athletes are dominating the top 10% of ultramarathons and, and open water swimming, what is it that they're doing? That would be amazing. I think the ability to endure pain, um, and this is not my thought, honestly, I should just say this has been theorized before has to do with their ability to endure the pain of childbirth child labor and childbirth i mean just the fact that they're forcing a baby out of their yeah. vagina yeah i mean that is insane i mean you yeah. talk to have you ever seen the machine they do they've taken these electrodes they put it on men <laughs> and recreate the pain of childbirth yeah and watch these men fucking <laughs> fall apart and like fucking turn it off no be taffy. yeah it's <laughs> It, it's I mean obviously I haven't given birth, but it's supposed to be unbelievably painful and women are Biologically suited to this. This yeah. is like so I think their ability to endure that pain is just It's probably just there's an evolutionary advantage yeah. to having this more you know, Higher capacity, but I also think one of the things that I learned from teaching martial arts is that women they learn technique better many times than men do because one, they listen, 
Mm. And two, they don't try to muscle things. So women have less of a problem with learning something from a person. Mm. And this is also true about archery. My friend John Dudley, who's an archery coach, says his favorite students are always women Mm. because they listen better. Um, they don't have as much of an ego. They don't have to pretend they already know something. They don't mm. want to just try it without uh, – and they follow it to a T better, like generally. Obviously, mm. we're speaking in generalities. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, they also don't have the uh, extra muscle that a man has. So men, when they're strong, will try to just force things and mm. muscle things, where women will try to follow what's being described to them, what's the proper technique. And they mm. do it properly mm. all the time, and then they develop this pattern of proper technique. Mm. I noticed this with Taekwondo, and I think my friend John said he, he noticed this with archery. I think this, this, this benefits them in sports. Because like, if you learn jiu-jitsu, really the best people to learn from are smaller men mm. or women. Mm. Because they, the smaller people, they don't have the physical strength to pull it off on a big guy. Mm. So what they have to rely on is correct technique. Mm. But if you learn jiu-jitsu from a big guy, man, big guy jiu-jitsu is weird. Because they could just grab your wrist. And you can't get go, you can't let go, and they can get away with things like okay, yeah. you go wrist control and throw the legs up, wrist control, okay, wrist control on who, yeah. right? Try wrist control on that big <laughs> motherfucker that was rowing the world record. You ain't getting <laughs> shit, man. You're gonna go flying through the air. That wrist control ain't gonna right, work. Right. You're gonna have to go against his strength. Right. You're gonna have to figure out a way to move around it. You're not have to go. You're not gonna go through it. Right, that big guy. If he was teaching jujitsu, well, just grab the neck and then you squeeze. It's, he's he's got the kind of horsepower that a, a man like you know a normal man can't imagine. Yeah. I, do you think that's changing again? To to bring it back to the UFC, I suppose, because now I mean, with what Cormier's doing, and and you know John Jones coming back, you know the lightweights are all moving up to heavyweight. Do you think you know gone are the days of the huge dude who was just a, a, a physical phenom, and mm. now the smaller technical dudes? Is, is that, do you well? Think? There's a there's a thought with the 265 pound weight class, and the consensus thought seems to be that somewhere around 240 pounds is the magic number. That's what they okay. think. They think that 240 pounds is the amount of weight that you have where you're strong enough that you can knock out any man, right. but you have more endurance than a man that maybe weighs 265 or okay. heavier and cuts down to 265. Okay. Now, this has not been substantiated. The problem is there, there hasn't been a really super powerful world championship athlete that weighed 265 pounds. There's been Brock mm-hmm. Lesnar. But eh, Brock Lesnar's enhanced, okay. right? You're dealing with uh, a guy who tested positive for steroids. He probably has had things. And, and then this is a new world. Okay. He's also 40 years old now, so it's impossible to tell what he would have been like at 30 mm. if he was clean. And then you have guys like Francis Ngannou, who's 265 pounds, massive knockout artist, natural 265 pounds. But... Doesn't have the wrestling base, got exposed in his fight with Stipe Miocic. If he can't knock you out, he's kind of doomed, and he tired out after the first round. Okay. So it's hard to say because there's never been a 265-pound version of Cain Velasquez. Okay. Cain Velasquez, in my humble opinion, when I look at all of the different heavyweights that I've personally seen fight, Cain stands out as the best. The reason why Cain stands out as the best is because he has superhuman endurance. Yeah. And his ability to put a pace on guys... You would see these guys just wilt mm. under the pressure of him. And I think with Kane, 
it, you, and this is where it gets really interesting. Mm. What did him in is probably what also brought him to the top is his mental toughness because his body started breaking down. Mm. He started having all these back injuries. He needed back surgery, multiple back surgeries, shoulder surgery, knee surgery. Everything was getting fucked up. And I think it was getting fucked up because he was working through pain and because he has the ability to tolerate pain that most people don't have. Right. He's just a fucking animal. Mm. But that's also probably what led to him having this insane endurance mm. is the same kind of mental toughness. I'm sure there's some genetic advantages as well because they would talk about how he would take months off and come back in and still fuck everybody up because he's just that good. But that also could be attributed to the, the cardio base that he had from competing for many, 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 many years at a high level and, and being known for that insane endurance. Mm. And perception to fatigue. Going back yes. to what you said, if you could quantify that, you'd put Kane up there with one of those people who yes. you'd go, he has that in abundance. Yes, well, yes. Okay. And yeah. Anyone else in the heavyweights then, would you say? Bill Cormier, for sure, has tremendous uh, uh, fatigue, uh, ability to tolerate fatigue and tremendous endurance endurance and he, he breaks people you know they call him the king of the grind and but on top of that they what they both have is tr tremendous wrestling technique the tr the wrestling technique as well as the endurance everything plays a factor john jones fits into that camp as well john jones has tremendous wrestling technique as well striking technique massive physical skills but also mental toughness his mental toughness is un unchallengeable mm. like you you absolutely have to give it up to him he's had his arm fucked up by vitor belford completely hyperextended refused to tap and then went up tapping vitor with a with a uh, americana i believe it was the next mm. round and even uh, his toe against chael sonic oh his toe that? was fucked up and he didn't even notice it until i was interviewing him I was interviewing him. He looked I down. He's like, "Oh <laughs> shit! Look at my toe." And he started going to shock. Was it as bad as it looked? I mean, oh, it was you turned upside it. down. Oh, it was completely turned upside down. I mean, imagine <laughs> that. I mean, if he wound up going into the next round, if he didn't stop Chael Sonnen, and his toe was that fucked up, and he wound up losing mm. to Chael Sonnen because his toe was bad, mm. that's insane. Um, he also went through that fight with Alexander Gustafson, where he wasn't really training very hard for that fight, and yeah. Gustafson won the first couple rounds and then John Jones won the last two to take it away. And and I watched that battle obviously with all the promotion at the moment and I think it was Winkle John or Jackson when he starts shouting heart, heart, you know, shouts mm -hmm. out and that was the that was the deciding I mean that spinning yeah. elbow, that was the deciding factor that you come out and you produce that. Yeah. Also in John Jones's favor, I believe, he has two fucking super athlete brothers. Yeah. And they used to apparently beat the shit out of each other all the time, and his brothers are bigger than him. Right. I think that is a factor, because I think that there's mental toughness that comes from being around that kind of combat in the household all yeah. the time. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think there's a bunch of different... Fa but it's... it's you. I don't know... I think you can teach that. I don't believe that mental toughness is something that you either have or you don't have. I don't believe that. I think you can teach it. But you gotta want it, and you gotta be willing to learn. You gotta be able to bring yourself to a state of mind mm. where you're unbreakable. Mm. I think it's possible. I really do. And some people just have that. Mm. That is, a, the, the, I mean, and I think they've developed it over a long period of time. And once they finally got to 
whether it's wrestling or jujitsu or MMA, they already had it and then they accentuated it and, and, and added on to yeah. it and then it got stronger and then they become known for it. Like yeah. that guy is just an animal. He's just a mentally strong. But I think that mental strength comes from many life experiences and probably uh, probably the guidance of their parents or mm. some other role model in their life that also showed them incredible endurance and incredible discipline mm. and this this mental fortitude. I think you can teach it though. Yeah. And I think you know I I, just, I don't I don't believe that it's something that's just either have or you don't have. I think you either have it or you don't have it but you can get it. That's what I think. I, 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 you know, I'm a huge fan of Dan Hardy. We've been chatting since the the swim, and I always go back to that armbar with uh, George St. Pierre. And oh I was yeah, like, ev everybody would have tapped. That was, oh yeah, and 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 I couldn't get my head, and, and and I can't wait to catch up with Dan about that and sort of exchange notes on this idea of mental fortitude because how he survived that. I mean, it was. It was yeah. horrendous. I was cringing watching. Well, Dan's a savage. I mean, he's and he's an intelligent savage. Mm. And you know, he's um, he's not like a thug or a, a brutish guy. He's a very well-read, intelligent, thoughtful guy. Um, but he's also a guy that knows how to dig deep. Mm. You know, and you know, when he fought George St. Pierre, that was his big shot. You know, mm. I mean, his big shot was against. A guy who was at the time was in his prime and was the greatest welterweight, arguably, of all time. Mm. I mean, the argument is uh, it's between him, Matt Hughes, and I believe now uh, Tyron Woodley is in that camp as well. It was like mm. the, the greatest welterweights ever. But you, what you get out of Dan Hardy is a guy who's thought things through. I mean, he, yeah. it really comes through in his commentary. Yeah. He's a very, very intelligent guy. Would you say he's the same, uh, sort of cut from the same cloth as Cormier then? Because I know Brendan spoke about this recently, saying he is the most intelligent fighter on the UFC roster at the moment. Cormier? Yeah. But in you, his approach, yeah. In his approach and mm -hmm. how he will break people. But mm -hmm. again, you know, when you watch you know, UFC embedded and stuff, you, you, like, you can't help but love Cormier. He's such yeah. a nice guy. But and, and this goes back to what I suppose you said about the swim, you know, when it was like, oh, you're, you're very smiling and stuff. But I see that in Cormier. He's the nicest guy, but I would never get in the octagon with him. He's no. not fooling anyone. No, he's <laughs> a sweetheart until you're locked in a cage with him. He's right? going to fuck you up. The difference between him and uh, Dan Hardy, though, is that he's a world-class wrestler. Right. I mean, he was a two-time Olympic team member and just one of the best wrestlers to ever compete in MMA. And you really see that in a lot of his fights, like the Derek Lewis fight. Mm. Derek had no chance, right. like no chance. You know, and Derek just knocked out Alexander Volkov, who in a lot of people's eyes, including mine, was one of the dark horses in the heavyweight division. Yeah. But Derek just did not belong in there with Cormier, who was the light heavyweight champion. I mean, he carries a lot of fat on him. Yeah. He's, I mean, and I think if... If he wanted to, if Daniel Cormier really dedicated himself, he could drop down to 185 pounds. I really believe that. Mm. But he's just, you know, he's, why would he? He's a fucking heavyweight yeah. champion. Yeah. That's the difference between him and, there's many differences between him and Dan. The success ratio is very different. Yeah. You know, Cormier's been extremely successful. The only guy he's lost to is John Jones. Yeah. You know, so, but. but but I find that with rest, and this is on a complete tangent here, but when you talk about that mind-body connection, like so often they're seen as separate. You're either an intellect or you're just a, a physical phenom. Like it's rare that you see the two. But when, again, ancient Greek philosophy, you look at Plato, like Plato was an accomplished, celebrated wrestler. Yes. He, I think he said something uh, along the lines of, you know, you should wrestle to find the answers to, that philosophers seek. It was, it was something like that. He was such an advocate of it. 
And and I think, and again, this is coming from, uh, you know, sort of my limited background, because obviously in, in Britain, we don't uh, have, have wrestling like over, over here and stuff. But there's something about wrestling, it seems, or, or, or I suppose my question to you is like that it just teaches that like mental fortitude, yes. you know, yeah, physically, yeah, neuromuscular efficiency and stuff. But it seems to have just produced this breed of humans that, you know, it, did you think is, is there's something about being face down in a mat as somebody's just trying to contort your limbs, you know, so that to, to go back to stress and stimuli, you know, it's also building up that progressive overlap in your own head. Yes. That, and, and what you just said there about experiences that, that, that quite often now when I go swimming, I'm like, it's not the Koryavekin. I'm not wearing a jellyfish tentacle on my face. You know, it's, it's not that bad. Right. And I think... Well, do, do you think, I suppose my question is, do you think it's the same with wrestling that you're like, I've been in a worse position than this? I think for sure. I think there's the, the strength that they have, the intellectual strength. And when I say intellectual strength, there's actually solving puzzles, whether people understand it or not. You look at wrestling, you think, it's, oh, it's brute force and strength and endurance, but they're solving puzzles, right? right? They're setting traps. They're trying to set up techniques, and they're doing this under heavy workload, right? They're exhausted. Their heart's pounding, and they're resisting 100% with another person who's resisting 100%. Yeah. When you see guys tie up, and they're throwing each other around, and they're fucking digging their toes into the mat, and they're yanking mm. and wrenching, that is a tremendous amount of force mm. that they have to keep up for minutes and minutes at a time. Mm. And I think a lot of that has to do with your ability to maintain intensity, and a lot of that has mm. to do with your ability to tolerate being exhausted and tolerate fatigue mm. and to force yourself into an, an, a highly aggressive and efficient mindset mm. and to be able to maintain proper technique under fatigue. That's a good point. Technique and intelligence, I believe. Again, yes. with, with the Royal Marines, we can be, uh, w when training with them, I find that it's crazy how you you'll have the cognitive functioning of a five-year-old you know you are complete right right, you know, right. You, you're on a 30 mile yacht with 50 kg on your backpack and somebody asks you some really complex question and you're just like i you know i don't know right you know and and i think certainly going back to the swim uh, there's times where i said to the team i was like please like when when i'm six hours into a swim through the night i need just really clear instructions yeah. just like ross swim this way ross swim that direction and again purely anecdotal for the moment but you know I, I love cowboy Cerrone and there's times when he's just in his corner and he's just having a full-on conversation he's so relaxed yeah you know and it's just like that you you could see somebody probably fatigued and they're panicking and he's just sitting on the stool like well, he's, he's got great endurance too that that helps that certainly helps his ability to recover right between rounds Did you see his fight this weekend i've got to catch up on it with sensational. perry sensational really sensational the best he's ever looked but he was on the bottom when perry Connect when yeah, I mean Perry took him down, but he said to me, he goes, he goes, he's trying to take me down. I was like, shit, I'm gonna let him. He said, I'll let him take me down. And then he reversed him immediately and got him in an arm bar and then broke his arm. He snapped his forearm in half. He sent me the x-rays. Yeah, yeah, I'll show you to you. No, no. I don't think anybody's seen this. I don't. Sorry, Donald. This is an exclusive. I'm sending this. If I'm not supposed to send this, I gotta send this shit. Um, yeah, we've been going back and forth and you know for him. I think it was a matter of rekindling his excitement Here it is. Yeah, it was a pretty emotional but oh, oh, oh that hurts, right? Oh. <laughs> Can you see that? <laughs> you want me to send it to you? Here. I'll send it to you, Jamie um, 
also, I think with Donald, when it comes, we we're talking about stimulation and motivation. He has a son now. Yeah. He has a little baby son, and he brought his son into the octagon with him and he's celebrating with his son. He just seemed different to me. He seemed different in his poise, completely in control. The guy he's fighting, Mike Perry, is fucking dangerous. He's fucking dangerous. He hits really hard. Yeah. He's very aggressive. And uh, Donald just handled him. Wow. And, and Perry took him down, I think, because he didn't like what was going on stand-up-wise. He just snapped that shit. But, that, but you mentioned there as well with Cerrone talking about his son. And it was such an emotional post that he posted on Instagram. And I loved it. And, and, and going back to what you said about finding something that, that alters your biochemistry... You know, and now that he's fighting for something, and you know mm -hmm. he's, he's got his kid. Did you, did you think that's that's what we were talking about music before? Mm -hmm. We were talking about getting his mindset. Maybe you use caffeine, like whatever it is. But something yeah. do you think is now different in Cerrone? Because you know, it's love. Yeah. yeah, yeah, the love of his ch his children. He has something that. I mean, he what he said was, um, I never knew what I was fighting for. Right. He said, now I have something to fight for. I think he was fighting for excitement before, mm. for thrills, because he's a, he's a thrill seeker. He's a wild motherfucker. He likes mm. jet skiing and jumping snowmobiles off the side of mountains, and he's an animal. A week before a fight as well. But, yeah, he doesn't give a fuck. <laughs> he does but, not. But this is a different thing. What, what he's doing in, in this fight in particular, I think, this is a different thing because he's fighting for his son. I mean, he's got this family now, and it means the world to him, and he looks over at this guy like this guy's trying to take food from his family, yeah. and he just was an efficient assassin. It was just, it was beautiful to watch. It was like, I think the best performance of his career. And, you know, maybe Mike Perry is not as good as Darren Till or as Rafael Dos Anjos or some of the other people that he's fought in the past, but he's fucking dangerous and he's a legit welterweight, where mm. Donald's not. Mm. Donald could fight at 155 pounds. Mm. That's one of the things Donald said after the fight. He said, Khabib, he goes, I'm back. I'm coming for you. Mm. So he wants to drop down to 155 and fight Khabib. Do you think he might now? Something's different, do you think? Do you, th do you think he can make a title run? Listen, man, Khabib is the motherfucker of all motherfuckers. <laughs> Agreed. You know, I mean, I don't know who's going to beat that dude, but that dude, Molly Watts. Askren? Maybe, but Askren is a different weight class. See, Askren's 70 and Khabib's 55. If Khabib and Askren agreed to a catchweight well, fight, yeah, yeah, that yeah. is absolutely a possibility and absolutely a possibility that Askren could best him. Be because huge. if someone's going to beat Khabib, it's going to be someone who's a superior wrestler. And Askren is a motherfucker of a wrestler. But is he better than Khabib? We really don't know and we will not know until they, they fight. But I do have to say that Khabib in the training camp at AKA, this is coming straight from Cormier and a bunch of other people that trained with him, say that he trains with Olympic caliber wrestlers and fucks them up. That's how good Khabib is. Khabib is, he's, he's so goddamn good on the ground. When he gets a hold of guys, they look perplexed. Mm -hmm. And I always bring up the Edson Barboza fight, because a moment in the Barboza fight in the first round where he had that thousand-yard stare where Khabib had taken him down, he was mauling him, and he looked over in the distance like, how the fuck am I going to get through three rounds of this shit? Yeah, yeah. And that's the thing with Barboza. I mean, Terry Etter, that kick, he just won. You, you, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So to see that, it was just, I mean, it felt like if, if I was to do mixed martial arts or jiu-jitsu, I know you spoke about it before. You said if somebody doesn't know, you know, what they're doing, like like me, it's like drowning, yes. you know, and, and that's exactly how I would, you know, feel, I think. It was just, 
humbling. And it's but, what the, you, but it's something that you could learn. See, the thing, what you've done, in my eyes, what you've done is so difficult. I think you could do anything. <laughs> I really do. I think what you did by forcing yourself to do that shit for six hours a day, take a break, six hours again, to do 12 hours of swimming every day for five fucking months, that kind of mental fortitude, if someone just taught you, I mean, obviously you're very physically strong and fit. If someone just taught you technique and taught you how to grapple and taught you kickboxing, you would be a motherfucker <laughs> at it because your mind is so strong. Like that, that, it, it, you know, there's a different mindset to have that same kind of mind strength with the adversity of another human being trying to kill you. Yeah, See, that's yeah, yeah, the yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah. How well do people deal with other people's... Uh, like, there's something about a person breathing down your neck that's trying to choke you that's very disconcerting. But if you can get past that, and I think you could, you would be a motherfucker at anything you did. And, and that's actually the thing. I mean, even at the moment now, I, I'm used to... Uh, just training for 12 hours a day. So right now I, I, I'm still sort of in biphasic sleep. So I've only been on land really a, a week. So that's crazy. Yeah. So Were you sleeping in a boat this whole time? Yeah. Yeah. You know, oh, six hours Jesus on, Christ. six hours off. What is it like to have the ground not move? Oh, just standing. Boom. Honestly, when I got on, I was, I mean, I was doing media interviews and everything was swaying. You know, ah. I was like, this is, this is, but even, even that night, my first night, the, the bed, it sounds so weird, but the bed was just a bit too stable. It was a bit too comfy. Wow. I, I woke up in the middle of the night. I was with my girlfriend and I'm looking for my goggles, you know, thinking wow. the tide's about to change. About to jump back in. Yeah. And wow. she, she was just like, go back to bed. And, and like, honestly, I say it now, like sort of joking, but there was a real element of, you know, just that you'd been conditioned and all I really cared about as soon as I woke up I wanted to know what the tides were doing you know how, what's where's it running how when does it start when's it how have we got good tide or bad tide is it spring tides or neat tides so spring tides being stronger neat tides being stronger. and that was my currency that's all I cared about yeah and it, it was really strange that you to try now and integrate back into society, you know, even just walking, you know, through L.A., the cars, everything moves very fast now, you know, and you kind of come back and it's um, it's a bit of a shock. It's a real, real shock. You must feel like you're in an alternate universe or something like to go through five months of one reality and then to come out on the other end. Yeah, it does. So I almost but but then even. It's sort of intrinsically or something. My body's used to working hard for 12 hours a day and just getting battered by waves. So at the moment, you know, I'm sort of sitting here and, and you know, I've been doing media all week and it's been amazing, but there's an element of me just kind of going, I need to use this work capacity. And so I am sort of training at the moment. The first session I did, I was in there for like six hours and I was, and they were like, the, the gym's <laughs> shutting, Ross. And I was just like, oh, okay. <laughs> you probably can't so, get tired. So, That's crazy. So there is that element. So well, one of the things that we all talked about after Sober October was that none of us had ever done anything like this before, but we're worried now that we're going to go back to our sedentary ways right. and that we're going to lose all this work that we put in. Right. Because at the end of the month, Ari, who had never worked out before, ran 15 miles, rode five kilometers, and then got on the bike for a while. I forget what he did on the bike, but I think he did at least a mile on the bike. And this was a four-plus-hour workout, but he had never done anything before. I mean, he did jujitsu. I I, I uh, bought him some jujitsu lessons. I bought him a year at Tenth Planet oh. Jujitsu, like like ten years ago. Like he went for a while, and then he hurt his knee and mm. stopped going. But he was ten years of nothing. Mm. 
And he's fucking 40-something years old. And he forced himself through mental fortitude. So he's shifted. I mean, we're so, like, the human body, I found, is so lazy. Like, we love homeostasis, Mm -hmm. our habitual level, what we're used to doing, you know, that status quo. And then, so when you do shift that, and it's all relative, because, you know, it can be, you know, swimming for 12 hours a day and stuff, but it's relative. And and I think when you do shift that, um, it is hard. And I think you have to be... So conscious of that. So even now, uh, look, for instance, my legs at the moment, um, you know, shrunk, but not just my legs. I mean, I essentially skipped leg day, you know, for 157 <laughs> days. But, there was, but your arms must be jacked. It's kind of it. So we went into the gym the other day and, and because of the, like ligaments, tendons, but not only just generating force like a bench press, but if you imagine like 40 knots of wind, you know, wind over tide that we we're talking, yeah. my shoulders are used to being contorted in ways that they shouldn't be. So your shoulders are resisting the wind as it's coming towards me. So you're, you're exactly. pushing with your shoulders. Yeah. And the amount of times I would take a stroke and then a wind. I mean, there's times when the waves hit me so hard, I thought I'd, I've just hit a boat. You know, I hit something and that would be poor. So it was that resistance as well. So um, on the bench press, it was just kind of like took, you know, 160. You know, I'm not sort of saying it's necessary just as a sort of sports science experiment. I kind of unlifted and then just took 160 kilos just for a ride. And it just kind of felt okay. What's 160 kilos? What is that? 160 kilos in... Sorry, Jamie. (laughs) Um, But then... Equally, my legs, you know, in the score, I'm barely lifting my own body weight. 350. 350, 350 yeah, for, you know, eight reps. So it's, it's, it's that that sort of strength. And, and so you hadn't lifted weights in five months, and yet you're like... Yeah, Upper body, yeah, but but yeah. but, ble- <laughs> but lower body, no. You know, yeah. and, and it's not even that, though. Like, you know, my legs, it's, it's, the, it's my feet as well. So right now, genuinely, and a lot of people afterwards are like, what are you going to do next? You know, what's the next adventure? And I said, I've got to learn to walk again. And everyone laughed and I was like, no, no, no. Like the, the arches in my foot have collapsed, those ligaments wow. and tendons. So it's, I mean, I think a lot They've of- collapse just from not standing? Yeah, I mean, yeah. Are you you got to think 12 hours in the water every day, but even when I was on the boat, I was probably eating or sleeping. Whoa, I didn't even think about that. No. So your load capacity, like your ability to like st- hold your body weight up is yeah. diminished. Yeah, I, I almost entered into this small group of people like astronauts where you've been in a, a non-weight-bearing environment for so long. So I joke, and when we watch that video back, and I was saying, oh, geez, you know, trying not to fall over there. Genuinely, I was thinking, please don't just fall over with all the, the characters wow. on clapping. And well, you, another thing that intrigues me is you're a young guy. You're you're not a lot of these endurance guys are old, angry people. <laughs> <laughs> they get older and they develop this ability to just fucking fuck the world and 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 push through things. How old are you? Yeah, thirty three. Yeah, that's yeah. very young to do what you did, isn't it? Yeah, and I, I think you're right actually, and that that would be a really sort of. Good point to make there. That I, I always think when people say I'm I'm too old now to train and stuff, I'm like absolutely not. When yes, granted, when you're younger, elasticity in your ligaments, yeah, higher testosterone, muscle mass, ability to, uh, you know, increase muscle mass and stuff, absolutely. But when you're older. And to your point there, Joe, when you look at these, you know, back in England, fell running, which we were talking about, you get these guys who just look like they live in the mountains, mm. you know, weathered th- faces, you know, they, their calves are just like this, just thick calves. And they have that 
capillary density, that like mitochondrial efficiency, movement efficiency. So their cardiorespiratory endurance has just been built up from years and years. And and these sorts of people as well, they they almost they love the mountains and, and running so much that they don't care that they're overtraining or like mm. they need a rest. Look at that old motherfucker. <laughs> There we go. Honestly, Jesus Christ. so uh, when I'm throwing, I am getting lapped, you know, by, fell by guys runner, like Josh yeah. Naylor. There you those go. Are all so fell that's, runners. that's fell running. Look at those guys. Yeah. Run into a gay bathhouse. <laughs> so all of them. Why they wear such short shorts? So this is it. Put some clothes on, boys. <laughs> so you can- What's up with those shorts? So, so you get they're the fell running shorts. Uh, okay, you have to wear those shorts. They're not compulsory. It but seems like it is, and you got numbers <laughs> next to your dick. That's weird too. I would have brought you a pair if mm, I didn't. I wouldn't wear them. <laughs> Come on, bro. Those are those are shorts that a girl would wear in a porno movie. They're, not, they're, they're in legitimate uniform. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> but actually, to, to this point, I mean, if you put, um, if it's possible, James, there's the um, uh, it's called the Bob Graham. So there's a famous uh, fell race going back to sort of the Barkley Marathon. There's a famous fell race back in England called the Bob Graham. And, uh, you know, legend has it. There was a guy, Bob Graham, and he sort of said, you know, I, I, I think I can do 44 peaks in the Lake District in under 24 hours. And they were like, no, 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 that's not possible. That's not possible. He said, yeah. So there was like a bet in a pub, you know, and they were like, yeah. And, and sure enough, that's what he did. And so there's this race now called the Bob Graham. And it's amazing in that it's it's steeped in history and heritage. There's a, there's a, a, a hall in Keswick, which is a small town. It's called Moot Hall. And if you were standing there, Joe, and you're in your running gear with those shorts on, <laughs> but you were running there with your running gear and you had your hand on Moot Hall and you were looking at your watch like that, runners would walk past you and just be like, oh, he's, he's about to do his Bob Graham. You know, they'd come over. There's that real solidarity that, you know, like, good luck, good luck. And you know, they'd wow. hug you and stuff. And then you have to do it in 24 hours. Um, and uh, Billy Bland, who was the one who, who set the record, which has only just been beaten by Killian Jornet, who... Uh, uh, recently ran up Everest as well. But I think he... Um, fucking savages. Yeah. There's so yeah. many savages out there. It's, so this, and what I love about this is... Um, oh, there you go. Is that... Yeah, Killian. Yeah, there you go. Killian Jornet. So the guy behind in the blue um, set the record. Look and what it, it says there. I needed to suffer, says Killian Jornet, after breaking the record that has stood for 36 years. 36 years. Wow. I needed to suffer. But but these guys, and it, and it goes back to, you know... Too often it's sports science, sports nutrition. Let's look at look at your gait analysis, running biomechanics. Mm-hmm. What footwear are you using? Minimalist shoes or not? And, and Go everything. back to that photo. Whereas with this, with fell running, it took 36 years for somebody to get close to that record. Yeah. So it's like, wow, what were they doing so far back? Granted, you need to know the terrain. Like you could, on this descent, on this picture, for instance, you could be running down there, struggling down the rocks, and you might not know that just, you know, 50 meters to your right, there's a perfect sheep trail that oh, you can okay. run it. And that's kind of the concept of, of, of fell running. So you, it's just a matter of getting up and above and over it, no matter what path you take? Yeah, yeah, but certainly efficient. If you know right. something, and so that guy in the front there is pacing him, basically, because it's very easy to get lost on. There's themselves. no specific path that you have to take? You just there, have to get over it? There's certain points that you have to get to. But then in terms of the terrain and the path, to, no, not really. So it's just point to point to point to point. Yeah. Like, how do they mark those points? Do they have like cones there or something? Will, I mean, this yeah will be long established that to do the Bob Graham, you need to do that point, that point, that mm-hmm. point. And then you come back to Moot Hall, you know, within hopefully 24 hours. And if you do it, 
then you have your Put Bob, that back, please. You have your Bob Graham. These guys look like a guy that would do that, whereas you don't. Right. <laughs> this is my my point about you and endurance. Like how your physique, you don't see a guy with your physique doing this kind of stuff. Yes. Do you think that you could do this kind of stuff? Running. I mean, no. I, I and, and I always say I'm not self-deprecating at all. How much like do you a, weigh? I think at the moment about 100 kilos, which is a lot. Considering 220. Yeah, so that's about the... 220 yeah, pounds? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, I, yeah, the Bob Graham is something completely different. And that goes back to what we were talking about, about power to weight ratio right. in a weight-bearing sport. So with something like running... Because you're so heavy. Yeah. And even though you have a lot of power. Yeah. Do you think it would be possible if you put... If you added more power to... Obviously not now because you're getting off of five months on a boat. But if you built your legs and your feet back up, do you think you could do this? Yeah, or do you think this under, is possibly under but no way near? I mean, Killian Jornet, what well, he's he's amazing. I mean, with Killian, he um, I believe don't come out. He's he's almost sort of semi nomadic. He grew up in the hills. Semi nomadic. Yeah, Oof. no. So for him, he would run a marathon to go and get his you know carton of milk in the morning. Oh Jesus! You know, so when you are lining up on a start line, I mean, you know, if you're racing against Killian, you look over and you've got a guy like that. Fuck. You, yeah, you just like you just get like I'm right. out, I'm out. Right. You know, you can't beat that guy, but he's but he is built for that. That's he is. my like. So you, but you don't think that guy's built for swimming? Like if that guy had to do what you did swimming wise, he would be at a disadvantage. I over a certain difference. Going back to the bell curve, right. that somebody like that, and and in my experience, when I've raced or swum with you know guys who are doing you know ten kilometer, they they will be quicker than me over mm -hmm. ten kilometers. But then it gets to a point. When we're like, you know, 30 kilometers in where their biomechanics just because of like muscular injuries, that starts to break down. Maybe as well, and this is so often overlooked actually, but you've got to train your digestive system. So again, this is mainly anecdotal, but, you know, in strength-based sports, you know, a lot of guys won't think anything about putting away 15,000 calories a day, which is what right. I was doing. So You were doing that while you were swimming? Yeah. 15,000. Yeah, 15,000 calories. What yeah. was it in? Like so A lot of it, you were sitting down once you got inside the boat. Yeah. And what were you eating? Just It was so intuitive. So it was, it was kind of strange because the diet was calorie dense. So you have to make up sure your calorie requirements of the day. Also looking at nutrient dense because you've got to care for your immune system. But equally palatability. So when my tongue was falling apart, mm. you know, I needed to look at that. And even seasickness, which we not really spoke about as well, which is kind of like you need something that hits those four points and does 15,000 calories a day so for me that was quite often just like porridge oats you know mixed with honey mixed with almond butter and then even looking oh here we go yeah so is this you eating what's that it was yeah he was eating and then he just, oh just there, there might be one there somewhere yeah what is that in that bowl beans mostly yeah and this is what i mean it just got to the point where it was like what can you just eat like what is gonna so i was just eating out of the pan just trying to shove it in your face yeah so like what what, what would you eat like what were the foods oh, this this is probably quite a good one yeah that we'll play. so yeah there you go like in terms of so essentially as a nutritional sort of in theory the framework you get what one, was that mask yeah. oh so that was to stop the jellyfish oh jesus yeah <laughs> No, but it doesn't matter. Like even the mass, because the giant jellyfish of Scotland, and there'll be a picture on there somewhere. They're kind of like six feet long. So when you're swimming at night and you can't see them, the tentacles will—they'll just kind of—they'll get you. And so I got like they will go in your mouth and your ear. I got—I got one in my ear. I got like wet willied by a jellyfish. It just kind of yeah. like got me there. Oh. So it's like that—that that 
yeah, there's a, the, trying to find and adapt the same way with the mass, but nutritionally um, as well. But also looking at as a framework, you're having uh, your protein, which is pretty stable, you know, 1.7 grams per kg of body weight per day. You know, that kind of stays the same. So then for the rest of the 15,000 calories, you basically need to make it up with your two energy yielding macronutrients. So carbs and fats. And so for me, it was very carb dependent because when you are swimming through a giant whirlpool, you can't say, can I have some fats, which the body has to go a certain process. It's going to take longer. No, you just need fast acting carbohydrates. But then equally, um, looking at uh, MCTs, so uh, medium chain triglycerides as well, which are a fat. So they have the calorie density of a fat, but they're treated more like a carbohydrate rather mm. than long chain triglycerides. So um, there was a certain amount of science. A lot of people would say, you know, 15,000 calories, that mean pizza and everything. It was like, well, mm, you know, yes, to an extent. But then place too much emphasis on that and you're not caring for your immune system as well. So right. to get 15,000 calories, I think, yeah, I, I always point out that it's using things like MCTs, which you'll find in coconut oil, uh, and certainly, again, not to get too much on the science, but capric and caprylic acid, which are converted to ATP, adenosine triphosphate, it's the molecular energy of the muscles. When you understand how to use MCTs like that, it can be quite easy to make up 15,000 calories. Mm. But you try and make up 15,000 calories of... Fruit. vegetables and fruit. right You're yeah fucked. exactly yeah. especially you like have like protein and then fruit and it requires a different digestive enzyme and then you're going to tell me to go and swim through a giant whirlpool and roll on my stomach for 12 hours a day it's just like with seasickness it's not going to happen yeah you just you, you must need a lot of like really dense foods yeah and and that's the thing that it goes back to again this this bell curve that i've spoke about but um you know, quite often a lot of endurance athletes that I've trained with who are amazing, they're unbelievable, they're sub three hour marathon runners, they're incredible. You know, they're, they're the guys that will go and run the Bob Graham. But quite often they say, but Ross can just eat. And it's just <laughs> like, yeah, that's often overlooked. You know, that my body, you know, I didn't have a sick day throughout the whole swim. That's crazy. You know, was that attribute. And I, I started at 92 kilos. Um, you know, when you, when you look at the, the pictures from the start to the finish, I just look like just like hairier yeah but just also just bulk because you are asking your body to to swim around great britain so it's not just the fact that you are you don't want to be in a calorie deficit can you imagine how much micro trauma the body's going to go through mm. so you're essentially just trying to nurse the body saying look i know this is horrible i know it's cold I know I'm asking you to swim for 12 hours a day. I know there's going to be jellyfish, toxins. I mean, sometimes I've stung like, you know, 20 times in one night in a single tide, you know. So it got to the point where I talked about my face sort of changing shape, but equally the toxins in your body, your heart would start beating faster. And, you know, so there was just this mm. idea that just eat just to, to, to look after the body. So when it comes to nutrition and were you taking any supplements? Were you taking vitamins? Mm. Yeah. yeah, lots. And, and that goes to, like I said, that calorie density, mm -hmm. but also to make sure that you're making you know, the your immune system. Yeah. 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 What are you taking? Uh, everything from super green shakes, you know, to multivitamins, to, to protein shakes, just to make sure that you were supplementing that calorie density. I think it's so often overlooked the higher turnover of like phytochemicals, enzymes, micronutrients. Mm -hmm. What about fish oil, anything along those yeah, lines? Yeah, omega-3s, yeah. Mm -hmm. and, and that's what I, just anything that you were thinking, well, this is even to, to glutamine, to a higher turnover of amino acids. Mm -hmm. So after, a, for instance, after training as well, you can have 
all the protein in the world, but if it has a, a low biological value, so um, again, I'm going to try and keep this quite short, but if, if you look at, you know, immediately after a workout, you know, your body's basically saying, look, we need protein to repair and regrow, protein synthesis. Um, and your muscles are saying, please. But if you don't have a high concentration of leucine specifically, so branch chain amino acids, mm -hmm. leucine within that is what will trigger to your motor receptors to basically repair and regrow. So quite often you can have all the protein in the world, but if it's of a low biological value, if it's not very good quality protein, your body's not going to assimilate it. Right. So it's not about the protein that you eat. It's about the protein you assimilate. Right. So you would take branched-chain amino acids post-workout? Yeah, yeah. And specifically, like I said, leucine, just to make mm -hmm. sure that I was kick-starting that whole recovery process. Right. Because as soon as you got out of the water after six hours, there's always the temptation. Just, I want to pass out. I want to just go to bed. I want to, mm -hmm. you know, and it's just like, no, you've got you got six hours to think before yeah. you're back in. Now, what about your protein? What were you getting it mostly from? A lot of whey protein, just whey, because of efficiency. Yeah, right. um, and also as well, you've got to think in terms of um, the boat and stocking food. They're mm, like yeah. perishable you know, food. So, you know, as, as much as I love my barbecue ribs and everything like that, that wasn't going to happen right. on this small galley that we had on the boat. Right. So, um, did you get any fresh food, eggs, anything along those lines? We did. Yeah. We, yeah. When we could stop in a harbor, we'd, you know, the team would go out. I'd never touch land, but they could go and quickly provision from land and bring it back. But ultimately, yeah, it, w it was trying to find a way that was, was sustainable as possible, but within the parameters that we had you know and that that was what was tricky what about your joints uh, i would imagine repetitive stress of swimming would wreak havoc on your shoulders yeah and that's why I, I, this goes back to i suppose this goes back and i was chatting to rich roll about this actually where um once you developed that sort of horsepower program that work capacity that i was talking about before from when i ran the marathon pulling a car it was um this is such a strange story, but I then uh, again to raise money for the for the Teenage Cancer Trust, I um, I climbed a rope. I, I think it was a ten meter rope, uh, but I repeatedly climbed it until I climbed the height of Everest. So it was uh, eight thousand eight hundred forty eight meters, and it was that that actually taught me that movement efficiency plays such an important role in terms of endurance because. You, you could be, you could have the best muscular endurance in the world, cardiorespiratory endurance, but if you can imagine with a rope climb, if you're solely relying on your muscles, your arms, like your bicep tendon is just, you know, and then you can be the fittest guy in the world, but within that kinetic chain, something's going to give, like the weakest part. Um, so you're right, from that, I had the, the work capacity from the marathon, then from the rope climb, I certainly understood movement efficiency. And so sort of transferring those skills over to, to swimming, I knew that you couldn't swim like a conventional swimmer. Everything that had taught you, especially in waves and everything. So I ended up developing quite a weird technique that looked really slow and cumbersome. I also I almost looked asleep, but, you know, it was really rolling. And that's why I asked you about um, swimming and even looking at, at, at Bert again to use him as that. I know he did his triathlon, but for everything that is taught about swimming, it's probably for someone who looks like, you know, Michael Phelps or, you know, an amazing specimen at swimming. So you're saying Bert's fat? <laughs> <laughs> is that what you're saying? I, I'm is saying, that what you're saying? I'm saying that, but for the record... Jamie heard that? Jamie, for the record... I, I've heard it as a repeated <laughs> yes. thread throughout the... It's like a <laughs> hashtag? <laughs> hashtag bird is fine? Uh, for the sorry, record, sorry, sorry. on record, I think Bert is a <laughs> specimen of a male. Uh, what I was saying... <laughs> but yeah, you're getting... <laughs> well, I'm listen, we have photographic <laughs> evidence. Pull up that photo of him with his belly hanging out. 
It's the most ridiculous. <laughs> this is after he ran a marathon. Is this pre or post uh, Sober October? Because he's pre. he lost a lot now, though. Yes, he lost 18 pounds during Sober October. He's the only one that lost weight. I gained weight. But there was that video because he was dancing in his bathroom recently, yeah. wasn't he? And were they look at this photo? Denim pants. <laughs> look at that. That's not even the worst one. I love him. Why is Burt Kreischer, Chrysler so fat? <laughs> He's not, that is that is a fine <laughs> specimen of a no, man. That that's the one. That's one. But is he? because he wore those for the weigh-in. Is he got? That's a pretty num- sober October. Yeah, he's got a bunch of those. He's got more than one that's pair of wears. denim. <laughs> that's what he wears. I love him. I he's love an him. animal. He's the fact that he ran a marathon with that body. It's Jesus amazing. Christ. It's like, yeah, running Le Mans in a Pinto. No, but Nate doesn't get enough credit. I think that's You're amazing. You're right. He doesn't get enough credit. Call him up. <laughs> I'm gonna, but um, everything that, that no you... That's, that's not real. No. It's not that big. That's a Photoshop or something. But it's it would be the yeah. same it would be the same with you that if we were looking at your swimming technique there'd be certain everything that you'd probably learn probably wouldn't be applicable to you because of how broad you are how things that you could actually use so I was basically really engaging the lats the traps the larger muscles of the back going back to uh, the the video with Brian Shaw when he was just ripping <laughs> that ri- yeah it was yeah. just pure ripping it out of the floor and and I knew that I couldn't necessarily do that looking at delts high catch high elbows right it's like what well, you're gonna do high elbows for 157 days for 12 hours. Right. You know, no. So everything right. that I'd learned and certainly, you know, great friends of mine who are, you know, Liam Tankock, 50 meter world record, backstroke, you know, Kerry on Payne, double world champion, 10K. These were amazing athletes. I'm not one of them. So you them. developed a more efficient, slower, a style that you could continue for five months. Yeah. And you just end up, it's like moving meditation. It just became like, you know, the limiting factor was just like, I was just getting bored. Like, I wasn't actually breathing What heavy. were you thinking of? This is the thing. I mean, you had to, at any given time, any tide, you had to think of something that was going to be more powerful than the thought of stopping or fatigue or sea ulcers, like, getting yeah. deeper into your skin. And so sometimes it was real easy because you were swimming with dolphins, minky whales, uh, I swam with a basking shark. Did they come um, over to you going, what the fuck is this dude doing? Yeah, like one point. Really? There was, yeah, there's a, there was a video of it ages ago with the uh, the minky whale. And he, uh, I was swimming 12 hours across the Bristol Channel. So that's kind of England to Wales. And uh, this, this was, without doubt, for all the hardship that I spoke about, I just want to say that there were some amazing moments. This one particular moment, swimming across the, uh, the Bristol Channel. And all of a sudden, minky whale, kind of about as big as this table, breaches right next to me. I was like, whoa. Like, Tommy Spires, I, I, I turned to Matt, the captain. I was like, Matt, am I safe? Like, what's going on? Like, should I get out of the war? And he said, no, 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 you're absolutely fine. And I was like, okay, because it's a minky whale. They're, they're, they're fine. They're friendly. I was like, okay, fair enough. So I keep swimming. And then for the next five miles, the minky whale was circling me. It was breaching over the top. It was coming under me and swimming like that. Whoa. I turned to Matt. I said, like, Matt, what's going on? And he said, I've never seen this. He's been sailing like 40 years. He says, I've never seen this. He said, but what I think is happening is I think it's a female. And She's I, trying to fuck you. Well, I, <laughs> I, was, I said, it's not mating season, is it? He was like, no, 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 it's fine, it's fine. He goes, yeah, what I think is happening. saving you for later. <laughs> this motherfucker <laughs> can go. <laughs> Look at him. I've seen him for four months in this water. I'm going to fuck him. Mating season is probably right around the corner. She's like, if he sticks around. I was going to move on. 
<laughs> so I know I was like, you know, what is right, like, that right, was right. a concern of mine. Yeah, that, that I would was imagine. a concern. Yeah, no, it was. And, but no, Matt said, no, no, no. I think it's a female. I think that she thinks that you're an injured seal. Ah. And so for the next five miles, she basically guided me all the way to the shallower water. Wow. And as I got there, it was literally the depth of the water. Matt said, yeah, yeah, much shallower water. And we turned whale breached one more time and then and then swam off as if to say you know you're safe now and wow then, yeah. amazing that's incredible amazing yeah so wow. all, for all of the hardship and everything that i've described there were moments and sunsets and 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 swimming with seals and and it was amazing um, whoa oh so that's the basking shark is yeah. that what you encountered? Yeah, so that was in the... That's uh, the, the actual one you encountered? I don't know if... I can't... I mean, I was swimming behind it seems him. like you could swim in that. Oh, yeah, I was... I was concerned about that one, but they, they, no. So that's a basking shot. So they're friendly, right. but the mat. Can you imagine seeing that? Like yeah. you're swimming through Scotland, like mountains either side of you. And so, so to to your point about asking what you think about, it's very easy to swim when when you know there's dolphins and everything. But there's times when you are lost in this moving meditation but then you see something like that and you very quickly got to get your wits about you because yeah. um, there were killer whales as well up uh, you know coming from sort of iceland around the top of of scotland so that was that was a concern were they interested in you thankfully we didn't see any but, but they wouldn't uh, attack you right well so this is it so we were speaking with marine biologists at the time saying look like what's what's the situation here and they said well you know, what's really interesting, they're so intelligent, you know, killer whales are so, so intelligent. Um, and they've never been known, this was what they said to me, they've never been known in, in the wild to attack a human. And I said, okay, fantastic. And they said, however, if they're going to attack a human, it's probably going to be you because no one's ever spent that amount of time in the water as well. Mm. You know, so I was like, right. They said, all you need to do right. is... <laughs> so I was like, all right, comforting. Um, so they just said, look, all you need to do is um, make sure that you, you don't look like a seal because they might mistake you for a seal, but they might bite you, but then they will go, oh, whoa, they're that, that intelligent. They'll be like, oh, that doesn't taste like a seal. So they might, you know, so I was just trying my best not to look like a seal. Well, I think when they've attacked people in the wild, though, it's always or in the in captivity. It's always been trainers. Yeah. It's always been angered, frustration. Yeah. You know, and that was my experience with the minky and everything. It was people said, like, how do you swim at night? Because certainly around uh, west of Scotland, it was, it was a depth of 200 meters. So you just you can't you don't know what's under you. And oh! you just, it's <laughs> so um there was that element, but but I think having swum with the minky whale around the Bristol Channel, I was very aware that in the hierarchy of the sea, I was very low down the pecking order. Yeah. And, and, and if it's comforting in any strange way, I was like, look, if I was going to be eaten, I'll be eaten in the day just as much as I'll be eaten at night. Right. You know, it's just it's just one of those it's just things. darkness. Yeah, yeah, just like you can't you can't see the hand in front of your face. It's wow. And you, like the Moray Firth, for instance, we were like forty miles away from land, and this kind of cutting across this huge bay across the top of Scotland, and um, you know it was clouded over, so there was not you couldn't even see anything because there was no moonlight or no stars, and it was uh, you in that complete sensory deprivation. You can hear everything. And it's just, if you hear a noise, a ripple, you're like, I really hope that's not a killer whale. But then oh. you've then got six hours to contemplate whether it's... So it's this, and, and again, like I said, Marcus Aurelius, meditation, stoic philosophy, that the conversations you have in your own head are just as powerful as other people. And I certainly found that all the way around, that you would just... Um, there was times when you were just like, what am I doing out here? <laughs> like, seriously. Yeah. And... 
it, it, that comes from I think you know this this idea of you have to be doing it for the right reasons and and I've again to, to bring it back to MMA I suppose it's it's really fascinated me you know some fighters you know Liddell coming out of retirement with Ortiz and and certainly you know you know, McGregor's made so much money. You know, what would get him back out of retirement to come and fight? Mayweather and, and you know, again, I've been out at sea, so I didn't quite understand what was going on there with the his kind of going over to Japan and fighting. And it's like, what, what does he need? He's got so much money. What would well, what, Mayweather? Yeah. Mayweather spends money. He spends money like crazy. He was going <laughs> to fight tension. Tension, uh, how do you pronounce his last so this name is, correctly? Yeah, Nasukawa? No, so I've been out at sea, so I didn't really see what was going on here. Yeah, let me I'll pull, see if you find that on my Instagram. He's out of his fucking mind. Would that have been a bad idea? Terrible. He would have got <laughs> head kicked into a, a coma. But but you kind of ask like, what 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 are the reasons? And I th- okay, here we go. I think he spends a shit ton of money. You think so they're saying they're trying to get it back on track? So, and, he and said s- Floyd had been duped into agreeing to the contest. Look, they will dupe him. By the way, they are very different. If those if this happens, believe you me. He's gonna get kicked in the head. Wow! They're gonna. They might say, "No, no kicky, no <laughs> kicky." Listen, man, you get in the ring with tension. He's he's gonna try to roundhouse kick you into another fucking dimension. So it was, it was a special bout. So there was gonna be no kicking. I don't That's know if they agreed to, to the rules. Wow. Okay. We but tension Nasukawa is. I think he's twenty. He, I think he's twenty years old. He's a really fantastic talent. Wow. Yeah, he I mean, he really is. But it but it fascinates me. So I'm I'm catching up on all this, like I said. So I've I've missed all of this for 157 days. Like I said, I even missed the McGregor and Khabib fight and stuff. Go to uh, striking breakdowns on Instagram. Lawrence Kenshin has uh he's done a bunch of breakdowns, as has Brandon Dorman's done a bunch of breakdowns too on tension. But uh he's legit. Lawrence Kenshin has this really fascinating video of him fighting this world Muay Thai champion and uh, he wheel kicks him in the head it was more like a jump spinning back kick to the chin but the way he did it it was like a really weird angle and you could see him setting it up he's really creative right. and he just found like a weird opening uh, for this guy and just kicked this guy into oblivion right he's he's nasty and he's really sneaky like the kind of techniques that he lands he's very clever with his reads and his understanding of distance and and what's possible right do you see it striking breakdowns on on instagram it's, might not be the name of it huh but yeah it's with this that that it, it, you know how much money does he need? He, he can't spend that much. Uh, that's a good question. I think he can. <laughs> <laughs> but and, and this is what I love. Again, I'm only just catching up on all this. Like I said, I, I should point. I have been at sea for 157 days. But with everything that happened, yeah, with striking Khabib, breakdowns. No, on there. I just got to it. Striking breakdowns. It's when I typed it, man. It's not coming up. No. Maybe there's something wrong with uh, Instagram. Hmm. I don't know. I got it right here. Here, I'll send you the link okay. so mm. we can see. Uh, yeah, here we go. I'll send you this. Hold up there. Copy link. Sorry, folks. Um, but this is a. I don't know how much they were offering him, you know, so I don't know how much. Um, Okay, I just sent it to you. I don't know. I mean, it has to be millions of dollars. Mm. That's the only way he'd be willing to do it. Mm. 
But if they offer, I mean, he also tension is quite a bit smaller. I think he weighs one thirty, and Floyd walks around. I mean, he's fought at one fifty four, one fifty ish, and F- McGregor was at fifty five. Mm. This this kid is fucking nasty, man. But he does a lot of wild shit. Like there's a there's a video here that you see him fight this Muay Thai guy, and he hits him with this crazy. That's when he was a little kid. Oh, like, see how he does oh, shit like that? Like, sneaky shit. Under the armpit. Like, look at this. Sip, sip. And then... <laughs> he was young hit, there. Watch this. Look at this. Crank. Oh, this no. is the one with the world Muay Thai champion. Boom. Puts that dude to sleep. But the way he set it up, that's a weird angle for that kick. It's very tight. Yeah, very tight. Real close. And it wasn't a round. It was straight. So it was basically like... A jump spinning back kick to the chin. Which is hard to generate force from. Oh that no, clo- no, 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 no. But, it's but when tremendous that close, power. Really? Yeah, no, as long as he can get extension on his legs. It's you just can- he had to jump and tuck and spin. But the fact that he chose that angle, it's like he realized that the guy was gonna see things that were coming around. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So instead of coming around, he had it come up and and through the middle. Right. Which is which made it much sneakier. But that's what we're describing now is another intangible, right? Yeah, you know, creativity. The, yeah, yes. exactly. Yeah. I mean, I, I, and what I, I found it so interesting when you know McGregor and, and Diaz, and I was just I'm a huge fan of Ido Portal, so mm-hmm. you know all the movement that he was doing. But I was just like, look, and I think it was, um, I think McGregor was on. Oh, I want to say Kimmel, but I don't think it was. He was on a chat show, and he was talking about that spinning capoeira crescent yeah. kick. And he actually did it. He performed it. And I was like, look, if he lands that, he, you know, the same way with Aldo, he'll right. be like, that is the movement is is it. You know, you yeah. can forget cardiorespiratory endurance, strength, everything that we talked about there, the metric saying, you know, heavyweight, you've got to be two, four, five, you know, whatever the magic. No, it's just movement. He would have reinvented the game. Well, and and I, correct me if I'm wrong, I think with Diaz, he did try it, didn't he? And it missed. I think. Um, I believe he did. He threw it. He threw it. I think he threw it. The thing, you know, that technique is a legit technique, obviously. Yeah. Wheel kicks most certainly work. Yeah. But it's not a high percentage technique. It doesn't, it's, there's only been a few wheel kick knockouts in, in the UFC. The first one was Edson Barboza over Terry Adam. That was number one. There's been a few since then. Uh, Vitor Belfort shocked Luke Rockhold with a wheel kick. It's it's happened before, right? Um, but it's just not a high percentage kick, and it's usually a kick that's, you know, it comes out of nowhere. You don't right. expect it, right? But that's but but can you tell when someone has it and doesn't? Because it's, it's an intangible. So if you said um, if, if at the start of the you know Barboza and Etten fight, you said you know, knockout by timing or creativity. You'd mm-hmm. say like, what would you mean? You know, but if you could foresee that the same way that you could quantify that sort of mental fortitude, I think you start opening the door in sports performance into something that's just this whole other realm that you don't talk about weight as a metric, strength, cardiorespiratory endurance. You can start talking. Is that hard to see? Again, well, with te- te- well, yeah, with creativity especially in regards to striking technique yeah that's a that's a crazy intangible because you're essentially deciding when to move and what to do right mm. like you can throw a jab you can throw a front kick you can throw a roundhouse kick you can throw a wheel kick you can throw a turning side kick you can throw an axe kick if you're crazy you know there's a lot of different things you can do so what do you decide to do and why do you decide to do it yeah. is it because you have a style mm. like some people's style is like connor likes to hop in and out and he throws like a, a little front leg side kick he 
throws like that for movement. He likes to keep his arms wide. He mm. likes to stand in a sideways stance. Some guys like to hole up like this in a Muay Thai shell, and they mm. move forward, lifting that front leg up, and they, they move mm. forward and, and challenge with leg kicks and striking technique. Some guys just like to wrestle. Mm. They, they'll, they'll paw at you, and they look to shoot like mm. Ben Askren. Mm. You know, he's not going to stand up and strike with anybody. He's looking to take you to the ground, beat the fuck out of you. Yeah. That's yeah. what he does. So it's all, what do you decide to do, and why do you decide to do it, and when do you decide to do it? Yeah. When do you engage? You know, you're throwing some feints. You know, you don't want to be the guy who makes it obvious that you're moving forward because then, like Connor clipped Aldo, mm. you, you get rocked. Mm-mm. You know, it's a, it's a crazy, crazy sport. It is. But you, if you enter into that realm and even start applying more sports, so again, we talked about that sort of strength deficit as well, that if you get someone, um, you know, trying to like, like John Jones, who, you know, move up to heavyweight, is it going to be, will it benefit him when he was strength training, for instance, mm-hmm. you know, and I can't remember his deadlift, but it was pretty impressive. Pretty it? impressive. I think it was 600 pounds. Big deadlift. Yeah. yeah. So when you look at that strength deficit, John Jones, very lean, was using neuromuscular, he was recruiting voluntarily all of those muscle fibers. It was unbelievable. But if he moves up to heavyweight, would it be... Would any more muscle mass be functional? And I think when you start good question. L- looking at when should he do that? That's another yeah. good question because you're beating your body up to do that. Yeah. And is that conducive with a high aerobic capacity training, like multiple rounds of sparring and bag work and pad work? Yeah. And you're all the lower back muscles that are getting stressed, and does that lead to potential injuries? Is he potentially damaging his discs, yeah. his knees? Yeah. Like, there's a lot of a lot of things to be considered. And yeah. when should you do that? A lot of people think you should do that when you're nowhere near a camp. Yeah, yeah. Like you win a fight, and then you decide to to build up in between camps. Yeah, yeah. and I think that's so. Awful. Even uh, Darren Till, you know, who oh, he's a huge, huge, you know, welterweight, huge, exactly. But he's moving to middleweight now. Yes. I think, yeah, he so, missed weight in his title shot against um, Tyron Woodley, right. and then he got rocked, and right? Put away. So if you're moving up, how do you do it? Do you in, do it intelligently? Do you, yes. you know? But but then there are guys who are just, you know, like they say, training is the realize of, uh, realization of one's genetic potential. And when you get someone like you know Rumble Johnson, it's just you know, no, you were never met. He, he fought well. No, he made weight. I'm sorry, he made weight against Tyron Woodley, didn't he? Yes, he, he, he made, made against weight Woodley. against Woodley. He, he didn't make previously. weight against Donald Cerrone. Right, that's what it was. He came right. in very heavy against Donald Cerrone. Mm. He's a big motherfucker, is what he is. Mm. You know, he, he's so big for welterweight. I think he'll be way better off at 185 pounds, but I think many of them will. I think there's a point of diminishing returns where they're significantly depleting right. themselves right. to make that weight, and then when they don't have to do that, they have more energy. We've yeah. seen that time and time again. Exactly. But when you had, and then did Rumble Johnson, he fought at welterweight, right? <laughs> and he's yes. just like, he's so big. face got like gaunt, and then all of a sudden he moved up and moved. And then, you know, was it Noguera? I mean, oh, Noguera, yeah. Oh my God, when he just bounced. He could fight heavyweight. He, he did fight heavyweight successfully in, in um, the PFL, he not he broke Andre Arlovsky's jaw. He fucked Andre Arlovsky up as a heavyweight. Right, and that's what always fascinates me is that, and I suppose what I see is that God-given kind of power. Yeah, yeah. that for all of the the training, it seems mm-hmm. you know with someone like you know Johnson, and he because he said, am I right? Thinking he said he's going to come back for heavyweight if DC and Jones go up. He's thought about it. Um, you know, I think he's uh, he's in the weed game right now. He's making some money selling weed, right. <laughs> which is legal now no, in a lot of, of places. So yeah, he's yeah. he's doing that. What? Wow, Jesus right, Christ! Okay. <laughs> Look at the size of him now. But he fought Hardy, right? 
Yes, wow. he fought Hardy and um, he took him down, which was interesting. He didn't want to stand with Dan. Wow. Back in the day, it was a different thing. I mean, they kind of made an agreement to stand with each other, and then he's like, Psh, "Bitch!" Yeah, yeah. And he yeah. took him down, and he won by decision. Wow. But that was a different Rumble Johnson. I think the Rumble Johnson at one seventy, he had no fucking energy. Right. He was on death's door. He was mm. just always exhausted. He would mm. lose fights. He just he got choked out by Josh Koscheck. Right. He was just too tired. Yeah, and you and, and I think weight cutting as well. Obviously, you know, there's been certain changes now, but even now, uh, and I love Max Holloway, but uh, it was. Uh, I think it was UFC Embedded where they flew his favorite cupcakes over from Hawaii and, <laughs> and he was like yeah I love cupcakes I've made weight and then he was just you know nailing cupcakes not smart no and I think there's just that element now that that I think as much as MMA has, has evolved and, and again this is someone who doesn't understand the technical aspects but as someone who loves uh, kind of sports history you know and i've watched it and i'm just like that is amazing but it's still got so far to go again we were talking earlier about you know football or you know soccer as known here back in england and the warming up of the the brandy you know in the in the changing rooms i think even now it's crazy when you have someone so gifted like that but they are you know rehydrating and recarb loading on cupcakes it's, it's like, yeah, I, there are better. <laughs> There's way better ways. You, you've yeah. cut weight. Your body is basically in fight or flight. You know, you're, you've subjected it to a form of micro trauma. You know, body's kind of sitting there going, whoa, like, what is going on? And um, then you're going to get, here you go. Here's loads of cupcakes. You made weight. <sighs> yeah, yeah. Terrible. So there, I find that really interesting that you see some of the guys who, you know, was it... Um, Gleason Tabau, wasn't it? Who mm -hmm. just like it was so big. It was he got in. It was like he sent he'd weigh in, and then it would be like he sent his older brother in. Like they were yeah. unrecognizable. Yeah. Um. And 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 I think it's really interesting that that physiological puppetry. If you know how to do it intelligently, it can be so powerful. But you do it for the wrong reasons. But even if you know how to do it intelligently, there's still a demand that it places on your organs. That's it's there's consequences you're right and and over time your body resists it and this yeah. was the thought behind max holloway's last weight cutting fail mm. is that when he was trying to cut down on short notice to fight Khabib, Khabib Nurmagomedov he was cutting down only to 155 and he right. couldn't make it right and they they pulled him out of that and then he started suffering some significant problems when he was getting ready for Brian Ortega right and they think that when he was ready for getting ready for Ortega what was going on was his body was reacting to the fact that he was trying to cut weight again and yeah. it was like fuck you right. we just got through this man right you know and he was like really messed up because of it right and right. he had to go through a battery of tests before they approved him to fight again mm. so his body had to like fully fully recover months off mm -hmm. and then get back to training and now he's okay again but but i think it's changing i mean now i mean frankie edgar was almost the first he would he would fight like five pounds he wouldn't even cut weight would he, he wouldn't cut any weight yeah mm. that was his weight well th this is what they say frankie although was the 155 pound champion mm. and now competes at 145 pounds really he should be fighting at 135 and 135 is where he could be at his best. Wow. That's what everybody says. Wow. Especially people that know, like, weight cutting, and they look at what he walks around at, and like, yeah. look, 20 pounds from 55 ain't shit. Yeah, yeah. You know, those guys do it all the time. Especially, yeah. you get a guy like a George Lockhart who really knows how to do it and yeah. put that weight back on you, you know, and how to do it correctly, scientifically. Yeah. 
It's, but, but we're seeing that now across all sports, I think, this evolution that we're understanding. Um, uh, Carlin Isles is one of my favorites. So he was a, a good American sprinter. He was, I believe, you know, top 50. You know, he was, a, he was amazing, um, but wasn't quite making it. You know, he's not a Usain Bolt. He's not a Justin Gatlin. So they just said, hey, Carlin, here's a, here's a rugby ball. And again, like oh. Jamie, it'll, it'll be on YouTube somewhere. It's like, you know, widely regarded as the fastest rugby player. They just handed him, you know, a ball. And, <laughs> and now there's one of my favorite clips because he, it was one of his first games or something. And, and I think it was an Australian commentator. And he just ran like rings around everybody. <laughs> sc- like uh, scored a try. And then the commentator was like, he goes, oh my God. He goes, I cannot believe this. Can you believe? Here we go. Look. Here we go. Here's the ball. Oh my God! Look at him go. Good, goodbye. That is insane. Look, look at this. This is rugby look how seven. Look fast he is. Oh my God! They're all quitting. They're like, fuck <laughs> look, this. Look at him. Bless, look, the guy he chasing gave that up. guy. There's more. This is. Obs- I love Connors. And it, he ran past him. Like the guy was ahead of but him. But there's no. Like, I'm not even going to sidestep you because I don't. He, it's like he doesn't oh even God. respect their speed. <laughs> look how much faster he is than those he guys. That's hilarious. Well, that's in many ways, right? Isn't it like that other guy who broke the world record by rowing? He had been doing something else and gotten so much power and energy in his body that he could translate that yeah. to, to rowing. And we're seeing that now. But it, and, and that was what's amazing there with, with Colin Lars. Like I said, he scored, a, he scored a try. And then the commentator, there was two commentators talking. They said, I cannot believe he's only been playing you know, a number of months. And uh, <laughs> they were like, yeah, no, that's amazing. And then the other commentator said, no, 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 I can believe it. He's just tried to give the referee the ball. <laughs> and he didn't know what to do. He'd scored a try. And he was walking around and he gave it to And the referee went, no, 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 you now kick it. You know, and it was, it was amazing. <laughs> they didn't bother teaching them. They're like, just listen, man. Just run. <laughs> but what do I do when I get to the end? Just get to the end, and then we'll talk. I'll tell you what to do. It'll take about three minutes. <laughs> they do. They do. And you, Just fucking run, baby. <laughs> Woo! You're seeing it. and I That's think, incredible. I think you spoke about this not too long ago, but I think you might have mentioned LeBron James saying if someone like that was taught MMA. Oh, my God. Everybody would be dead. What would happen? Yeah. And I think we're seeing that now, that, that you know, sports, now there's more money, you know, in, in, in MMA, and it's evolved to what it is now. It's amazing that if you get, you know, some unbelievable phenom as a kid, you go, you, you go into MMA. Yeah, but it's not as popular as basketball. Basketball and it doesn't pay as much money as LeBron James makes because right. LeBron James, what does he make like a hundred million dollars a year? Something oh, well, crazy? For just from basketball, it's like thirty-five or so. Wow. Thirty-five million just from basketball, and like and then sponsorships. Wow. Like unless you're Conor McGregor or Floyd Mayweather, you're not going to make that much money from fighting. They right. can make that much money from fighting, but they're so rare. Right. And then Conor could only make that much money from fighting if he boxed Floyd. Like, even though the fight with Khabib was the number one MMA pay-per-view of all time, the number two pay-per-view in the history of pay-per-views, just behind uh, Floyd Mayweather versus Manny Pacquiao, right? It got more pay-per-view buys than Floyd Mayweather versus Conor McGregor, I believe. Wow. I believe that's true. Wow. Look that up. I think it was 2.2 million for Floyd Mayweather versus um, Conor McGregor, and then 2.4 million for Floyd Mayweather versus Khabib Nurmagomedov. I think it was number two of all time. Wow! Just behind the Floyd Mayweather Manny Pacquiao fight, which is just incredible. So they must have made a shit ton of money from that. But how many times can Conor do that? Yeah, I don't you know? I mean, look, the Irish support him, but people thought he had a chance of winning that fight, and then once he gets smashed like that, 
I don't think they're going to think he has a chance of winning again unless he does something significant. Right, right. Yeah. He, he has to beat somebody. Like, he has to fight like Kevin Lee mm. and fuck him up. Mm. You know, if he fought Kevin Lee or Tony Ferguson and fucked him up mm. and then, you know, said, look, I had two years off. I wasn't ready for Khabib, but I'm mm. ready now. Mm. Fuck the Mayweathers. And he says something <laughs> like that. <laughs> People, he's got to have some success, though. Uh, Floyd Connor was 6.7 million. Floyd Manny was 4.4 million. And then it would have been right around the next one, which had been Oscar and Floyd, which is 2.4. So, wow. yeah, it's like 2.5, 2.4. So, it'd been right around number two. So, it was three. number three then? Number three overall, number one MMA. Number one MMA, but number three overall. Yeah, it, would be, it could be tied. So oh, what, yeah, were the, what were the boxing numbers again? What was it? 6.7 for the Floyd Connor, 4.4 for Floyd Manny. Wow. That is so crazy. 6.7 for Floyd Connor. Wow, I had my numbers off big time. But that, with that amount of money, that, that what, it, it, it's so interesting that, you know, with that thrown around, this kind of extrinsic motivation, money, media, mm. fame, Versus intrinsic motivation. And, and in, a, in a strange way with the swim, you know, I, when uh, we got around John O'Groats at the top, it was uh, everyone was like, yeah, 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 you just set the Land's End to John O'Groats record. Well done. And there was cameras and it was amazing. And then I was just swimming across the Mare Firth getting hit by jellyfish in, you know, six degree waters. It was, it was horrible. And, and, and I, think, I think right now as well, and Khabib fascinates me that, you know, and I, I don't know the logistics again. You know, I was, I've been out at sea, so I'm still trying to catch up. But he was offered so much money for the rematch. Mm. But I believe he turned it down. Khabib? No. Right. There was talk of a rematch, but the UFC did not offer him a, a, right. okay. a financial sum. Okay. That was rumors. They hadn't even talked. They were trying to figure out what to do next. And, in fact, the UFC said that most likely next was Tony Ferguson. Okay. Okay. So that's that's the current the last time they talked about someone fighting for the title okay. again. But it was a while ago now. Again, it might have been UFC Embedded when, I, and I think it was when Khabib, years ago now, met George St. Pierre. And, and Khabib, you know, said, oh, lovely to meet you. And, yeah. then just, and then Khabib was smiling and he said, oh, you know, my dad has always said that he'd love to see me fight, you know, George St. Pierre. And, and for me, that was really interesting because... Khabib's motivation seems to be intrinsic and, and, and yes. putting his skills against the best people in the world. You could offer him all the money in the world, but he just wants to do something. You know, he talks about his dad, his family, and, and it's, yes. it's, it's a different beast. And that's what I find really interesting. That, but, but, but I'm not saying different as in better, worse, good or bad, because ultimately Mayweather's never lost. But when you see someone like Mayweather, you think... Is he just an extrinsically motivated when he's saying, you know, if it doesn't make money, it doesn't make sense? You kind of look at him going, well, you're extrinsically motivated, arguably. And I don't know, I've never met the guy and stuff, but you, you're, you're extrinsically motivated, but you've never lost. So which one's more powerful? I don't think he's completely extrinsically motivated. I think that's a lot of it as an act. Do you think? Yeah, he's too good. Right. He's too good. There's, I mean, there, there has to be some, some deep emotional connection to his work there's right. got to be some connection to his legacy what he's been able to do the way he's been able to retire okay. undefeated as a professional boxer which is almost unheard of right because the, the, there's i want to believe that and i hope yeah. that's true because because you're almost taught like intrinsic motivation do it for the love you know and sort of you know the sweet science i want to believe that mayweather's there and he's studying you know but maybe he doesn't want you to see that side oh maybe. no he's too good Right. He's too good. He's got to have a love of boxing. There's no right. way. 
He's too good. The way he he's artistically taking guys apart, like you go to the Canelo Alvarez fight, mm. the way he was like was slipping away from Canelo's big shots and then popping yeah. him with the jabs, like pitch. Yeah. Not today, <laughs> not today. You ain't good enough for this. And right. it was intelligent in his approach to that fight too, because he made Canelo drain himself to get down to 150 pounds. Right, right. That was a different thing because okay. he he forced Canelo to cut a lot of weight to get down to his weight class. So- but, I mean, Floyd really, realistically, is a 147-pound fighter. I mean, right. he's only fighting in these higher weight classes because the money's there. Right. He's right. a fucking wizard, man. Yeah. He's a wizard. But that's what I mean about, like, that That all starts. Mm-hmm. You know, he's playing with everybody's head. Yes. You, you talk about, like, psychological warfare, you know, the art of war and everything like that. And he's doing it on a mass scale like we've probably never experienced before. Well, what was fascinating was Connor was doing it to him. He was screaming in his face with a hard-on, by the way, at the weigh-ins. I don't know how he generated a hard-on. But, uh, you know, he must have played with his dick before he got out there or took some Viagra or something. I really think that might have been part of the psychological motivation. Just Just screaming in his face, I'm going to fucking kill you, you little puke, you piece of shit. And Floyd was just like this, just dead face, staring at him. Right. Didn't scream back. Dead face, stayed calm. like, tomorrow I'm going to fuck you up. (laughs) And there ain't a goddamn thing in the world that's going to change there. Right, right. Well, Connor was like the first guy that Floyd ever fought that could fuck him up in a real fight, though. Right. There was a different element of danger there because there was a upon rule set where Connor wasn't going to kick, wasn't going to take him down, wasn't going to strangle him. Mm. So because of that, Floyd knew he could win. Mm. But he also knew without a doubt mm. that if they were just going to fight fight, mm. if there was no gloves, if they just put the gloves aside and just had a street fight, mm. Connor would fucking kill him. I mean, there's not a question on my mind. There's not that not there's not a doubt to be had. Yeah. Connor would kick him from a distance. He would probe him with front kicks, kick mm. his legs. Floyd would start to limp. Connor would step in, tie him up, elbow him, take him down, smash his face into a bloody pulp, do whatever he wanted to him. Strangle him, rip his knees apart with leg mm. locks. He'd do whatever he wanted to him. Mm. If they were gonna just fight fight. Mm. You know, and he said that to him. He's like, if this was a fight, I'd fucking kill you. Mm. He just looked right at him and he's saying that to him. Floyd had to just eat it. Yeah. But it didn't matter because it wasn't a fight. It was a boxing match, and he didn't have a chance. But do you think that worked with Aldo, for instance? Because, I, and again, this is me kind of just talking more on the, the mental warfare side and not really understanding the technical aspect. But that world tour was fascinating to yes. watch. And the whole way around, and again, um, this is me not understanding all that much about MMA, but being fascinated with the mental aspect that, uh, and again, George St. Pierre, when he fought Nick Diaz, and, and they were saying, you know, we're going to, uh, he's going to talk to you. Mm-hmm. He's going to talk to you. He's going to walk you down. Right. Don't be affected. And George St. Pierre was like, oh, of course, yeah, I won't be. And then he was talking so much that George St. Pierre even said it just invoked. Again, actually, going back to what we were talking about, you know, our bodies, as much as we like to think about it as black and white, they are complex biochemical organisms. So when, and I'm not saying that, you know, the Diaz brothers necessarily think like that, but they're like, I'm going to talk to you and I'm going to mess with your biomechanic. Do you know your, the, the, the chemical reactions within your body, neurotransmitters, making you... For, do, Emotions, do, mind fuck. You. Yeah. Yes, they're doing it for sure. They're doing. They're not stupid. When Nick's doing that to you, he's like, "What, bitch? What you gonna do, bitch?" He's fucking with your head, man. Right. I remember the first time he did that to Robbie Lawler. Robbie was like 20, 21 years old, and Nick was young too. And they're both standing to the. They moved into the cage, and uh, they closed it. And Nick Diaz just started saying, "Stockton, motherfucker, <laughs> stock." And Robbie Lawler was like, "What?" 
And he's like standing in front of him. That's against Carlos Condit. He drops his. The best one was against Anderson Silva. He <laughs> fell to the ground and pretended he was sleeping. He put his hands together like he was taking a nap. He laid down, and I I couldn't stop laughing. I was like, this motherfucker is so crazy. He just like right there, <laughs> dropped down and started relaxing. Go to the back. Uh, go back. That one's better. Yeah, oh, nice. that yeah. one you see him lay down and leaned on his head like I'm just gonna take a nap here like what are you but doing he, bitch he was doing what Anderson Silva did to Forrest Griffin but and has done all his career but he's doing this to a guy who's the 187 <laughs> 85 pound rather best ever right right and he's not even a 185 pounder yeah, yeah he's yeah. really a 155 pounder yeah, yeah, I mean yeah. Nick Diaz when he was a champion in Strike Force or Elite XC Elite XC right he was a 155-pound champion. But what's, what's amazing here is everything that we talk about, in terms of intangibles, mind-body connection, Nick is imposing his mind-body connection on Anderson in that he's going to, I'm going to mess oh, yeah. with yours. He's fucking with his head, for sure. What, what, what is, was he the champion? Why am I not remembering it? Was it Elite XC or Strike Force that Nick Diaz was the champion of? It might have been Strike Force. I, why can't I remember? Yeah. Why, well, why did I think Elite XC? No. He, I don't even think he fought Elite XC, did he? Mm. Oh, okay. Now I remember. Because that was because Mayhem Miller and uh, Jake Shields had a brawl in Elite XC. Oh, yeah, yeah. And Nick Diaz was a part of the brawl. They all piled on each other, and that was chaos. But Strike that was uh, him, uh, Paul Daly, as yes. well. I mean, that, the, the knockout, I mean, knockout, oh. but also just kind of, yeah. like, fell. And, and it, so it's it's so strange that this intangible, this thing that I'm now fascinated with, like, yeah, mentally. KJ Newton's Elite XC. So he did it. fight him in Elite XC. That's right. So he fought in Elite XC and then became Strike Force champion. That's wow. why I'm confused. Wow. Yeah. That, um, that, that he, whatever Mayweather did differently to Aldo might have been granted different sports, granted, but it, there was something that McGregor was like, it's not working. The way that when he pinched, you know, Aldo's neck and Aldo yes. turned around and, you know, again, without understanding the technical element, there was, for me, it was so fascinating watching the two. And like you said, Mayweather stood there completely stoic. You know, yeah, was Aldo was not comfortable with it and he lost his composure and he attacked, he attacked Connor in a way that exposed him. Mm -hmm. He he got exposed to a counter shot. He was he wasn't patient. He was very emotional and he just wanted to fuck that dude up and right. he just got clipped. Right, right. You know, and look, Connor played him perfectly. Played him like a fiddle. Yeah. Yeah. Hey I, man, I gotta wrap this up. It's already five o'clock. We just went for three hours, believe it or not. It's a time I'm warp so in here. Sorry. No, don't what? be sorry. It was awesome. I really appreciate it. And uh what you did is beyond impressive man i mean it's fascinating stuff and i feel like we could do a hundred of these kind of conversations though <laughs> so sorry how often are you in los angeles uh no this is my first time oh well come back yeah, no come I back know, and visit I'd again man to. next like, time you're gonna swim to the moon <laughs> let me know <laughs> no this is it I, honestly like next time we'll get like we'll get bert in again for yes. the record he's an amazing physical specimen of for a, guy. a fat guy right <laughs> no 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 no, 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 no. No? <laughs> First so no, seriously, we'll go swimming or like, okay, yeah, we'll do something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. well, let's, let's definitely do another podcast. Though. This has been amazing. Either way. Thank, thank you, you so much. Really, really, no, really appreciate thank it. You. Thank you.
All right. Oh, tell people your social media, how to get to you. Oh, bless you. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, Instagram, just uh, Ross Edgley. Spell, uh, please. Yeah, I know. It gets difficult. Uh, R-O-S-S-E-D-G-L-E-Y. Uh, same on Twitter uh, and same on Facebook. Yeah. Beautiful. So, thank you. Thank you, brother. Thank you. All right, folks. That's it for today. Bye. I am so sorry. Thank you.